This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. Okay, so Angie and Dan are back doing our conversations around self-development. And today we're going to be talking around people-pleasing. So before we uh, dialed in today, we just decided that we're not going to have any specific structure. There's no specific question askers or anything like that. We're just going to talk and see what comes up. So everything you hear today is literally freestyle. It's a part of our world that we're stuck into quite a lot with our clients. So it's like be quite good for people to listen to and learn from. Yeah, sounds about right. I think we're both kind of, we've lived it, lived with mm-hmm. it, helped people with it. It's been a big part of our lives, maybe mm. since day dot. So it seems appropriate mm. to talk about it. So let me kick off then, because one of the things that I remember you saying to me years ago when you were my regular coach, I'm going to have those weekly meetings with you. And um, you said that although you'd beaten the most of people pleasing, it's not something that necessarily completely goes away. And you sometimes you slip back into it and you catch yourself. So let's start with that about what people's expectations are around people pleasing. And even if they, they break, the, break the back of it, how much they can still expect it to sometimes materialize in their life. Yeah, well, we might need to start by even defining it. Um, I've been surprised, especially the difference between people's reaction to the term nice guy as a nice guy syndrome mm. and then the term people pleasing. Some people actually say they're a people pleaser in a bragging tone, which mm. tells you how they view the the idea. Um, but that kind of correlates with your your question there, I guess, is, you know, where does this start and what is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the reason I consider myself always in recovery is because partly I think the structure of people pleasing is so deeply embedded in my brain that it cannot be erased. It can only be managed. Some of the outer stuff that, you know, tactics and strategies I learned when I was older and thinking critically have been completely demolished because they're at a level of the brain I can get to. Mm-hmm. But others, you know, we talk about, say, the initial reaction you have to something before you can even think about it. You know, mm-hmm. that comes from a part of the brain that's locked and sealed up. There's no accessing that part of the brain. That's childhood trauma shit, which is, it's not like incurable in terms of you can't adjust your behavior and have lesser reactions and so on. But the initial spark, the kind of trigger, as it's often talked about, I think. There are certain parts of this that are untouchable and you're going to have to watch out for them. Like an alcoholic, you have to watch out for it your entire life. You'll never be okay with alcohol. It's just never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we should start by trying to define what, because there's people pleasing, which you know, it's like a verb. It's, it's describing mm-hmm. a behavior, a range of behaviors. But we're going beyond that today, I think. We're talking about a people mm-hmm. pleaser, mm-hmm. which is like the difference between behaving badly and having a personality disorder, like there are people who consistently <laughs> behave badly kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know, let's just draft it. I mean, we can almost do it as a personalized uh, thing because it's different for each of us. But for you, what do you think it means to be a people pleaser or even a people pleaser in recovery? Mm. I think people pleasing is effectively when you're – I'm going to go for two levels. So on the surface level, it appears that you're serving other people. I'm being kind. I'm doing these things for the people at the compromise of yourself. So that's where it can be quite soul crushing because basically the narrative that you 
and consistently embed in your head is other people are more valuable than me. What other people want and need is more valuable than what I want and need. On a deeper level, although we convince ourselves it's actually to give something to other people and to, um, to be kind and generous towards other people, it's actually more along the lines of I'm trying to take something from somebody. So if I give you this, more than often there's a secret IOU attached to it, but it's like rarely known to the person, often very unconscious of the fact that I'm giving this thing with the view to take something back, whether that be validation, kindness, affection, um, to build their own reputation, whatever it might be, there's something that they secretly want in return. So although it appears like a very giving thing, it's actually a very taking thing. So it's actually driven from a selfish perspective. So there's a part of it that's very self-compromising and therefore self-sabotaging, but there's also a very uh, selfish part of it that mostly slips under the radar above people's awareness or below people's awareness, sorry. Yeah, that would pretty much line up with what I think of it. I think that's the kind of the uniting factor of it, like bringing all the people pleasers together under a single category is the hidden intention. Mm. As you I kind of allude to, it's a hidden even from the people pleaser themselves. The, the narrative in their own head is I'm a good person, I'm a nice person. Mm. Sometimes it's more darker narrative, like I'm giving more than other people are and I deserve better than this and things are unfair and we all fluctuate between those narratives. But that narrative's a screensaver and the real program is happening underneath. And the real program is, you know, everything I do is designed to serve me and to make me feel more comfortable, to get more rewards, to put me in more familiar situations, to avoid pain, hassle, mm-hmm. uh, emotional discomfort. And it's all it's all like a master plan. It's like your tactics and stress and in, in chess, but there's the strategy of checkmate, you know, and that's, there's a kind of checkmate strategy overall for the people pleasers. How do I get to a place where everything's all good for me all the time? Mm-hmm. And every, that's, I mean, that was a huge wake up call for me when I, you know, for me, the wake up call was reading no more Mr. Nice Guy. I finally had a kind of term to put to this thing that I am, which I'd never found a term that suited it before was I couldn't find a movement in my life that wasn't in some way at least influenced by this goal of smoothness and total social approval and the end of any unhappiness or discomfort or effort. Mm-hmm. Like everything, even if I was putting in huge efforts and being very uncomfortable, it was for the long-term game of not having to do that. You know, And I, I just remember being quite shocked and a little depressed for quite some time of going, fuck, is anything I do real? Is it all just a stress? Is this all bullshit? Is it every like decision I've ever made from the big things, like what degree I'm going to do and what job I've done down to the little things, like how I word a sentence is everything part of the strategy. And why is it that I get that massive, like, like boulder off my shoulders when I'm alone? Is that the only time I'm not doing it? You know? And I think the answer is yes. That was the only time. Like I used to fucking love being by myself and like knowing like no one's watching me. It's like I finally get to take my clothes off and, you know, let the hideous body like breathe a bit. Um, and, and just how like instantly the anxiety will hit me if I heard someone coming up the stairs, you know, or something like my time alone's about to end. Mm. Quickly that would change whatever I was doing to something else, something more 
you know, something I think would get more approval. Um, so yeah, I think you and I are right on the idea is we tell ourselves we're good people. We do a lot of behaviors that if you isolated it and wrote down on a piece of behavior, you could easily describe it, you know, piece of paper, you could describe it as generosity or kindness or whatever. It could also be that with different intentions perhaps. Mm -hmm. But if you know that there's like a narrative that I'm self-sacrificing for the greater good, which is actually hiding a deeper intention of I'm not self-sacrificing at all. I'm getting exactly what I want out of this. Mm-hmm. Even if it looks like I'm self-sacrificing to guilt trip people into giving me even more. So on. So overall, I mean, that was just a long winded way of saying, I think I agree with you completely, basically. So when you're in a client call, I'm sure you've been asked this because I certainly have, and I'm going to, I'm curious to see if your answer has been similar to mine, but sometimes people ask me, for example, how do I know, that when I'm doing something for someone, if I'm doing it to be good, and if I'm genuinely being kind, because there is such a thing in the world, people can do things with other people and it'd be purely from a place of kindness or generosity and with, with no strings attached kind of thing, with nothing expected in return. Well, how do I know if I'm doing it from a place of people pleasing? How do you answer that? Well, there's a few different answers and it depends on the context, but one of the things it's like being like I said, like being an alcoholic is it actually helps to have a little bit of distrust around that to not be sure of yourself and to take measures to prove it to yourself, at least on occasion to keep up to date, you know, for just an example off the top of my head is to give anonymously. Only, mm-hmm. you know, that it happened. That's something a people pleaser can't do with any satisfaction. You know, if they don't get any rewards, uh, with the exception, some people think they get some sort of karma or, you know, like a religious point scoring thing that they're doing here. But if you can do it in such a way where it genuinely is self-sacrifice, for example, like you take the hit for someone and they don't know what happened and you never tell anyone, you don't even write it down in your journal in case someone might discover it. But how do you feel when you engage in that behavior, when you do it just because it was the right thing and no one got to applaud you in any way, you don't get any points for it. That's a good little tester. But generally what I like to think of is before you worry about the intention, make sure at least you get the behavior right. Make sure you are doing good things. Because one of the things I actually, uh, it's not that I disagree with you, but a nuance from your definition is that on the surface, they appear to be doing nice, kind, generous things. That's not always the case. It's always the case in their mind that they think that. But I've met plenty of nice guys who are actually quite cruel and nasty, at least on occasion. They do spiteful behaviors. They sulk. Uh, they'll sabotage other people for their own success. They won't participate or pull their weight. They'll avoid things that require effort and allow other people to suffer because of that. You know, there's nothing more callous than a people pleaser who can't get anything from you. You know, if you're not like in the zone of where there's some rewards, you're nothing to them. You know, they're quite happy to let you suffer and burn. Mm. You know, people pleaser is the least likely person to anonymously give to a charity of another on the other side of the world because there's no gains in that. But they'll give to the homeless guy. People are watching, you know. Um, so the idea that they actually engage in good behaviors consistently, like sort of objectively good behaviors, that's often a lie. Uh, a great example is like unsolicited advice. It's one of the most annoying things in the world to get unsolicited advice. People please us do it all the fucking time, constantly telling you what you should and shouldn't do and how you should feel and doing stuff for you, taking over and fixing things that you didn't ask for help with. I mean, that's horrible behavior. It's not even close to good. It's like the opposite of being helpful. 
So first you've got to make sure that your behavior is actually helpful, beneficial, does add value to the situation for almost everyone involved, including yourself. Mm. Then you start going like, why am I doing it now? You know, and start making like little tweaks. You know, let's say I um let's say I give my wife a compliment on her parents because I know she's insecure about her body and uh, that'll make her feel good, which will make her like me more. This is a gray area, you know. I actually believe the compliment, but why am I giving it? As opposed to I can say it in a different way where I lead her to recognize her own strengths. Right? So I might say something like, well, what did you do well today? Which is going to have much more power than my compliment. But actually, I'm not the one giving her the validation. She's self-validating. So I can make a little tweak where I'm no longer people-pleasing because I'm not the one who's going to get the reward for this pleasure. She's going to reward herself. I'm encouraging rather than fixing. So on. I'm kind of ranting here, but it's because that is the big question. Ultimately, once someone becomes aware and they're like, I want to work on this, they go, but fuck, how do I know? I'm a fish yeah. in water. I don't even know what water is. Like, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you say when people bring this up for you? Well, I think firstly, our, our demographic of clients are different. Um, mm. I tend to work with more uh, like corporate kind of individuals. Um, and more than often, it's down to maybe something that they're trying to do at work or maybe uh, an exam, like a qualification they're trying to gain or maybe the car that they drive or something like that. And mm. the question that I often ask is, like say we we're talking about, like I'll give you a specific example. I had one client one time and she was looking to do this quite senior qualification. I won't even say what industry it was, but it would take her to a much higher level, potentially open her up to new things in the business. And um, I said to her, or she was saying that only a small amount of people in the business will be that highly qualified. And I was like, okay. And I said, if, uh, and I said, do you actually want to get the promotion off it? She's like, I don't think I do because it's going to so, so much more stress, so much more aggro, going to have to deal like two or three times bigger team, a bit of a pay rise, but I don't think that really balances the extra level of stress that'll come with it. But I'd still quite like to get the qualification. And I was like, well, why is that? She goes, because it would be nice to be one of the, whatever it was, make it up with 20 people, whatever. Mm. I said, well, let's, let's look at it on a different way. I said, if you could do that qualification and have nobody ever know that you did it, would you still go ahead and do it? And she was like, no, not a chance. I said, so what's your motivation behind doing it? Is it to actually have the qualification because you want it? Or is it the qualification because what other people will think of you because you had it? And it was then that it can, she was like, oh my, you could see the face change, the penny drop. She's like, it's because of the, what other people will think by me having it. And it's those types of moments when people realize actually the motivation is externally driven as opposed to internally driven and it's the same with when somebody has like a massive flash car like really fast sporty car now if people enjoy cars I'm, who am I to say don't have a flashy car if you genuinely enjoy it and you can afford it obviously not I wouldn't encourage it if it's putting you in multiple thousand pounds worth of debt but again the question is I always say to people if you were to drive your car but nobody was ever to see it and you could only drive it on roads that had no other cars would you have it and the ones that say absolutely yes then they're probably doing it in my opinion, probably for the right reasons, but the ones that say no, then they're doing it because of the validation, because of the image setting, because of what other people will think of them because they have this car. So they gain more uh, like a high level of reputation or something by having this car versus the person that would, no, I wouldn't care if nobody even knew about it kind of thing. 
And as long as they're being honest with themselves, like you kind of, to a degree, have to take the, the word that they're being honest. And if they're not, it will come up in some other way later because they'll, you know, trip themselves up and not know it. But it's very similar to your kind of, your questioning really is like, if nobody else knew about it, if nobody, you know, like giving anonymously or something along those lines, nobody knows about it, then you cannot get validation if nobody knows about it. And that's when you see people sit back and go, now I feel differently about it. Or actually, I don't feel any differently about it. Yeah, I think and it's a good place as well for people to start with those big ticket items. Like what are the huge mm. things I'm doing that are just like, if I don't get the validation and approval for it, I lose zero, like I have zero interest in it after that, mm. you know, because um, what you find is there's those and then there's like a nuanced middle where it's like, oh, I'm still kind of into it. Just not as much now that you say that. And you can see mm. that like, hey, maybe there's a genuine passion here that's been like bashed to death by the inclusion of people pleasing i think of people mm. pleasing as being like a poison that taints things mm -hmm. you might really love your sport but if you're also doing it to impress your father with how well you do at the sport it can kill the sport for you mm. you know there's uh there's lots of stories of sort of famous athletes going grassroots and having way more fun you know uh, who's that ridiculously good basketball player super famous i can't remember his fucking name right now it might be lebron yeah i think it's lebron james and uh, he, he plays in like this league with like overweight 40 year old dudes and he just crushes them all it's just not even fair but it's his favorite you can tell he's just having so much fun you know it's just surprising these small towns when he shows up and there's 20 people watching the mm. best basketball player on earth shows up you know you can see oh that's he, he really does love this as opposed to say there's guys like uh, Muhammad Ali Andre Agassi who after their careers admitted that they kind of hated every second of it, but it was all about the glory. You know, mm. Muhammad Ali, he hated all of his training. He's admitted to that freely. He just wanted to be known as the greatest in the world. And that was his key driver. That's actually a form of people pleasing. Will Smith's latest books, a great read for like the most extremely talented version of people pleasing everything he does. And I think still to this day, given everything that's happening with him actually since the release of that book, He's still there. He's still basically an extreme people pleaser. Mm. Um, and Andre Agassi hated tennis from the day he picked up a racket, but just did it because his dad pressured him and he wanted to impress his dad and so on. His book Open is really good for like, holy shit, his whole career was a scam, you know? Like he never he never enjoyed hitting the ball once. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but you know where I think it's really struggling, you know, this is the difference now. Clients I have, it's not that I've never had clients in corporate or anything, but Usually they come to me because they're struggling in their social life more than anything else, mm. as opposed to your guys, you know, they're looking for maybe career related improvements uh, or at least their person persona in the career. Well, I'll come back to that, but let's carry yeah. on. Um, what I found is the real like meat of the work is in the little things, you know, from what they wear. You know, I had a great debate with a girl once, where I called uh, wearing makeup people-pleasing. I said, it's not like a bad form of people-pleasing, but I said, would you do it at home by yourself? And she's like, yeah, I would. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> do you though, really? Like how often? How often if you just dressed up in front of the mirror? Because maybe you do, in which case, great. I can wear all the makeup you want, especially if you're happy to go out to like a big public event without makeup. Like that doesn't concern you. You can see that that's not an attachment in that way. 
Like I, I wear clothes rather than walk around naked in public. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I obey some rules. Is it people pleasing? Well, I'll happily streak as well, just to have some fun. So there's times where like if you can find exceptions, you know, you're not hooked on the thing, but it's those little details. It's down to how they phrase a sentence. I've found, for example, that questioning is quite often driven by people pleasing, you know, confidence. Usually they speak in statements, you know, uh, I, I always use stupid, like little examples cause they're so common. But I'll say like, I want chicken for dinner. That's a statement. But if I'm like, what do you want for dinner? I'm now into people pleasing. I want to see how you react first. I want to gauge your level of interest. I'm going to adjust to what you say. I'm actually making you lead so that I can't get it wrong. I'm avoiding the risk of rejection. It's like huge, lots of stuff going under what is a, Tiny little question that a guy might ask, you know, two or three times a day and not realize why he's asking, why he always asks and never says, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, if I, you know, I've talked about at length, uh, in the bedroom, you know, a lot of my guys, they do not initiate sex. Mm -hmm. They do kind of, uh, encouraging movements towards it. They'll kind of make themselves available, but they won't be the one who takes the risk to get things really crossing the line from not being sexual to being sexual. And they just do this, like they live in the subtle way of avoiding rejection. They always make other people lead. They never cross the line. Like they tell jokes, but they're so honed to their audience. They know that they'll never actually offend anyone. They'll, they have this ability to read people that they'll never go too far with their joke. They'll never take a risk of you know, being in trouble with HR, for example, or whatever. And they've just got this constant, like, little adjustment thing happening. Almost with every word they say, there's thought going into it. There's strategic planning going into it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hard work is. In terms of recovery, that's the hardest shit because it's just in everything. Everywhere. I was. I was doing it. Everywhere. Sure. And I think there's, there's different degrees to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, there's a different spectrum of people pleasers. So you refer to yourself as a recovering people pleaser and you probably are going to go back to that original question in a sec, but you um, are still on the spectrum of people pleasing, but you're at the very high end where you maybe slip into it and you think, damn, it's bloody got me again. And you maybe redeem yourself or change that, or maybe it's just very, very rare. It comes up or something along those lines. But sometimes people uh, take conversations like this from a very literal sense that think, maybe they were kind of on the higher end of not people pleasing, but now they might hear this and go, but I ask my partner all the time what they want for dinner. And I don't think that makes me a people pleaser. So I think if I, if I kind of paraphrase what I'm hearing anyway, and what probably I like the audience to potentially pick up on as well, just because you do something like ask somebody for dinner of what they want for dinner, doesn't immediately make them a people pleasing. It might be a form. And actually that isn't a bad thing to say to your partner, what do you want for dinner? It becomes an issue when you're, constantly doing that because you're unable or unable sorry to make that decision for yourself I historically not these days but historically have gone out with guys where I'd say what do you want for dinner and they'd always reply with whatever you want I'd be like well we can do chicken we can do I don't know like something else or something else and then it's like well you choose babe and it's like just make a bloody decision like where would you like to go tonight well I don't mind you choose tonight okay well do you want to go to this restaurant this restaurant this restaurant no you choose that's when it that's when it starts getting bigger and more pronounced. It's not just if your life is generally very balanced and you just want ha once happen to say to your partner what, what you want for dinner, 
that we're suggesting those people are massive people pleasers, yeah. but it's when it's a pattern and when it's this constant inability to lead, that's the thing to look at. It's not showing an interest in somebody else's preference of food. It's actually this inability to lead and this avoidance of making a decision as the, the person at the front, basically. Absolutely. I think this separates the definition of people pleasing as a behavior, which can be happen two or three times a week and there's nothing wrong with you kind of thing mm -hmm. versus being a people pleaser, mm -hmm. which is the kind of behaviors we talk about are the go to they're the autopilot. They're more likely to happen than anything else. They, there's patterns. Sometimes there's unbroken patterns like you always like without exception do it this way. Mm -hmm. um, so on one end, it's like if you're not a people pleaser, it still doesn't hurt to adjust the people pleasing behaviors, how rare they might be. It's just you don't have anything wrong with you, like carry on with your life. No harm's been done by this. Mm -hmm. But even so, I'd say like if I ask somebody, I know what I want for dinner, but I ask them what they want first. I'm still forcing them to lead whether I'm a people mm -hmm. pleaser or not. And there's better ways I can communicate. I can say, look, I feel like chicken. It makes it easier for them if I do this. I'm like, I feel like chicken. I'm going to take the risk of you saying, no, I'm never eating chicken. I'm a vegan. Fuck you. And, and you know, have a big problem. Um, I'll, I'll take the hit for the team. That's real self-sacrifice. It's not the bullshit that people please do. It's like, I'm actually going to take a hit. I'm going to take the risk. I'll be the one who gets rejected. I'll be the one who loses and fails. Mm -hmm. That's real risk-taking, not the risk-taking people pleasers think they're taking when they're actually avoiding all risk. Mm -hmm. But absolutely... Put it this way, if you have to work on being a people pleaser, it's like kind of any other psychological disorder. There's kind of two criteria. One is you have to have the symptoms a lot. And two is they have to have a negative impact on your life. That's the criteria for a clinical psychologist to actually say you've got to work on this shit or take medicine or whatever. So if I occasionally, like all of us, I occasionally hear a voice in my head, I don't meet the criteria for schizophrenia. But if I'm walking around all day and I think people are shouting insults at me, it makes me want to fight people. I got schizophrenia and I got to do something about it. Mm. And it's the same with people pleasing. If you constantly make these moves to adjust people's impression of you to something more favorable, if you've lost yourself in that, mm. and if you always avoid taking the risk and avoid leadership and, you know, reduce the options in your life down to what other people say they want, and this is costing you you're not happy with who you are you're not in healthy relationships your career is not where it should be your health is bad you need to do something about this you're in that category now so yeah. it's kind of yeah people pleasing as a behavior is always something that could be improved when it's something that must be improved it's when it's more often than not and your life sucks because of it or life is significantly impaired in some yeah. way you know, i was going to check in with you because I'm a high achieving people pleaser. If there's different types, you could say that's one of them. Uh, the extroverted show off is how I'd put it. I call it the performer. <laughs> um, so when you find a talent for something, especially that comes easily to you, uh, as a as a people pleaser, you might cling to that and go, "I'm just going to use this like a weapon to get approval. I'll just impress the shit out of people all the time." You know, it's usually something that's easier for you naturally than requires a lot of hard work but sometimes it can be a hustle uh and what i found is that absolutely took the flavor out of winning and i was wondering i wanted to know from you your perspective working with like high achieving people in corporate 
how many of them have climbed up the ladder and they're still not satisfied and they just can't enjoy it. They can't enjoy the wins that they've sustained because there's always the not good enough story. There's always better wins. They get used to it like a drug and they don't get high anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I would say with 100% because if they weren't having those experiences, they wouldn't be my client. (laughs) So it's, you know, I'm sure there's some very high achieving c-suite directors senior managers whatever their their title is out there that are very happy and not having these emotional challenges um but it's far less common than people realize and until you've had the experience of seeing behind the scenes of my line of work it doesn't come with this and like there's a lot of people that maybe work at a less you know in terms of hierarchies and organizational structures they work at a, um, a lower level on paper um and they assume that because the person is a senior director or the CEO or the COO or whatever, they, they're they just like, well, everything's great. I mean, look at them from the outside. They've got this massive house, got this massive income, got a couple of bloody Porsches sat on the driveway. They've got a couple of gorgeous kids, yada, yada, yada. And people make these assumptions because we never, as um, I think it was Simon Sinek who said this once or something, but we don't measure each other. And how people feel we measure each other and what what we see basically so we make assumptions around how people are feeling and if people aren't actually being particularly open with what they're feeling nobody's going to be any none the wiser they're just going to see the material stuff and the smiley faces big house big house um big family whatever but it is very very common in my line of work when people get there and they've been incredibly successful i'm thinking of one client in particular i don't work with them any longer it was we finished it like a few months ago um the guy was a multimillionaire. But he didn't need to work. He chose to work because he, like, it was almost like part of his identity to work. But the stress and the pressure that came with that and this constant narrative of beating himself up if he dropped a ball or anything, that the pressure he put himself under, uh, massive perfectionism, procrastination, sleepless nights. Like, if one of the board, like, one of the investors in the business that he was CEO of would say, can we have a meeting? His brain would immediately default to, oh my God, they're going to sack me. So if he got an email on Friday saying, can we meet on Monday morning? He'd spend the whole weekend in a state of panic going, what does he want? What is it about? Was And, and this instance this is a perfect example. He was actually being told that he'd done a great job and he was getting a random bonus that he didn't expect. But he spent all weekend thinking, he's going to sack me. He thinks I'm crap. Like this is, what, what have I done? And then going through all his work and his notes and seeing what is it that he wants to actually go for and have a word with me about. So this constant narrative of I'm not good enough, um, Sometimes, like, I think there's a very high correlation that you and I have also identified that when it comes to things like high achievement and perfectionism, there's there's often, the two often go hand in hand very easily. And uh, then what I've found in my experience is, well, from my observations, should we say, people use the strategy of I'm not good enough narrative. And they seem to think that by telling themselves that I'm, I'm not good enough, that will be their motivation to propel them forward to work harder. I must achieve. So they work longer hours, they work weekends, they they take on work and probably work that they don't need to be doing. They study in their extra time as well. I mean, they burn themselves to the absolute bone in order to achieve, achieve, achieve. Then they get very, very far doing it. And it that strategy on paper seems to be a successful strategy. Although underneath that, it feels like every day, it kind of feels like a bit of a firefight because they're constantly battling. What are people thinking? Imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough tales, like exhaustion, et cetera. But I think there comes a tipping point and that seems to be the point where I feel that they, it's not unusual for those people to enroll with me is that the strategy that has actually served them well on paper to be so successful starts working against them. 
because as they get more senior, everything is distorted. So they've got more eyeballs on them. So they've got they're carrying a heavy weight. They've got more visibility. They've got more responsibility. So the workload has gone from here to here. They've got more budget to manage. So there's a bigger risk if something goes wrong. They've probably got a bigger team to manage. So when the team used to be six, it's now 30. So everything has been, you know, doubled, quadrupled, even more or whatever. And it's almost like the way I see it is that um, the analogy I often give is that as you're going through your career, you imagine having a rucksack and every day a little marble is put in that rucksack. And every time that marble is in place, it's because of the I'm not good enough story. But that drives them forward. And even though this rucksack is getting heavier and heavier, filling up with marbles as they spend 20 years in the career, 25 years in the career, they get to this point where they just physically can't carry this bag of marbles anymore. And it's grown on them so it's got bigger and bigger so gradually it's almost become unnoticeable because we've almost desensitized to this pressure in this world that you're living in. And then it's like the knees buckle. I just can't carry on anymore. And that's when they're like, something is wrong. I need to go to somebody and speak to this, but they can't work out what's wrong because the strategy in which has got them there has been very successful historically. And now it's actually working against them. And that's just my analogy of it. I don't know if you've had any similar experience when you, if you've worked with senior guys at like that or senior women as well, but it seems to be this ongoing pattern of the same thing. And all that journey of the marbles is people pleasing, lack of boundaries, lack of honesty, um, not being able to stand, like manage upwards as, as well as manage downwards. It's this, I will do everything and anything to be recognized for that next promotion. And that's self-compromise, self-compromise. But the people pleasing is the connection to, I'm doing this for my gain of my career. The self-sabotage the self is I'm taking punches along this whole route whilst doing it and ripping shreds off myself in the process. And then they hit this breaking point where it's like something has to give or I'm just going to leave or I'm going to get depressed or something. Or, and sometimes they already are. Yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely sort of the, the path rate, pathway of the corporate high-achieving people pleaser. Yeah. Uh, where I more so see the social pathway play out. Mm. which is very common to my own experience, which is it works exceptionally well when you're a little kid. Like you're having way more pleasure than pain employing. Like when I figured out that I'm academically smart and funny, and I figured that out when I was a kid, those two weapons, I could just like slay. I was murdering. Do you know what I mean? Like I was just killing it every day. Teachers think I'm the best. Kids looking up to me because I crush it, but I still play sports or whatever. And I'm the funny kid. And then I could make my parents laugh just like I could make kids laugh. I eventually figured out the like I can get the whole range going. I was everyone's favorite person and I was, I was, I was just floating. That's why I, and I think this is why the strategy sticks is because either creates so much pleasure, pleasure or reduces pain so much that you're like, this is killer. Like a kid who's being traumatized and abused at home finds a way to like reduce that significantly. Mm. Well, fuck yeah, I'll keep this going. Like a little bit of pain's way better than heaps. So you get this definite sense of like, because there's a kind of, I didn't start doing this. I figured it out when I was about seven or something when I moved, uh, must be when I moved to the school and tried a new way of living. Because before that, I was a bullied kid. I was the crybaby. No one liked me kind of thing. I was alone at school every day. Mm. Still get anxiety walking to schools just thinking how lonely it feels in the school for me. So I figured something out when I was seven, the strategy like finally fucking works and it was killing it. And then in high school, pretty much worked it kept me out of the bottom i was kind of floating in the middle so i was like i was in a band which was kind of cool in my school and 
I played enough rugby to be acceptable as hard, you know. I wasn't good at it, but at least I played. And I was in a group of friends that were generally respected and not beaten up or anything. And, you know, I got enough trouble at parties and took enough drugs to be accepted as enough of a badass. So I was kind of like, I got by on it. Mm-hmm. Already I was noticing that I'm struggling with girls more than the other boys seem to be and so on, but... I had friends who also were, so maybe I felt like I was still in the middle there. And then I got a, like a long-term girlfriend at the end of high school that gave me the illusion that I had broken free of this. I didn't realize I was really doubling down on people-pleasing once I got into a relationship. I was to learn that lesson much later. But then, like a lot of my people, it's usually in the 20s, mid-20s especially. What used to work doesn't anymore. And the results aren't that great. So it's kind of a combination of uh, drug tolerance. You know, your your highs just aren't getting you high anymore. Mm. I remember like a girl would kiss me in high school. I'll be floating for a month. A girl kisses me and, you know, when I'm 22, I'm like, oh, but why didn't she sleep with me? Like I'm not high at all, right? I need way more to get high. Um, Or being like the cool band guy. In high school, I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm the man. And then like playing in a band when I was, you know, in my 20s, I'm like, oh, only 15 people showed up, right? Like I just, the high wasn't there anymore. But also it just, it actually wasn't working even to get baseline. You know, I, my big crisis, my turning point was going four years without sex. And that was not a choice, right? I was doing everything in my power to end that drought. But of course... (laughs) You know, I think they call them incels now, which I would never choose to identify with. But I, I, I felt like I was doing everything. It's like eating every healthy food you can find and working out 10 hours a day and still being obese. You know, I was like, Jesus Christ, nothing fucking worked. Of course, I mean, I wasn't really doing anything different at all. But that was my wake up point where I was like, okay, I keep getting this fucking feedback that I'm the nicest guy ever, that I'm the favorite guy in the group. And yet nobody's sleeping with me. There's a serious, like, I'm doing something wrong. It finally clicked, like, I don't like the results. I mean, it was pretty superficial around sex at that time. But that was a gateway to deeper understandings. Like, I've even had, just this year, I had a memory that was must have been almost, like, traumatically repressed. It just popped back into my head. There was this year... Uh, where all of my friends organized to go away for New Year's, which is, you know, it is the tradition in New Zealand because New Year's Eve is summer for us and we all go away camping and everybody between the ages of like 13 to 30 does this and they do it in mm-hmm. groups and everything's all booked out to fuck from like March onwards. So you got to get them quick to get the beach spots and so on. And they had booked it without me. There's no spots left. I can't get anywhere near them. And I'm facing New Year's on my own. And the the brutal thing is they simply forgot. I mean, it'd almost be better if they didn't want me there. But I was such a non-entity to them that they didn't think to include me in the planning. Mm. Partly because I was spread over lots of different groups, like lots of uh, extrovert people-pleasers are. They didn't know if I'm in their group or another group. They expect I'll be doing something else with the band or with the other groups. So my core group of friends booked a New Year's without me, and I just had this wake-up like, Fuck, do I even have friends? Mm. Are they real? Is any of this real? Do I actually, you know, it's actually only in my career that I felt certain that I was perceived to be of value. 
but everywhere else i'm like if i died and didn't come back would anyone give a fuck like how good is the stuff i've got Mm. like i I went away to america for six months it was my first real self-development step though i didn't think of it at the time and i remember the grief i felt when i came back and discovered that nobody had really missed me they'd all carried on with their lives just fine that nobody was pining for dan to get back except maybe my family you know but as a people pleaser i just took them for granted and looked for more highs but this wake-up call that i didn't really matter that much to anybody and i've been trying so hard to please them all and that's the result i was quite bitter about it as I was about like being the nicest guy that any girl ever met and she wished she could find a guy like me, but she won't sleep with me. Like there's a lot of bitterness building up, but unlike a lot of nice guys, the bitterness was self-directed. I'm like, this is a me problem. Like some of the guys I work with, they become misogynistic. For example, they get all red pilled and they think women are the problem. I'm like, dude, women seem to like other guys. All right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, dude, if it's just you and like 10 girls in a row don't like you, and those 10 girls find other guys they like. Maybe it's you, bro. Um, and like a lot of people, they get bitter towards the world and the universe. They think it's unfair, the social situation that they're in. But I was very much of the mind like, I'm fucking, I've missed the ball here somewhere. And I got to that. The good thing about missing out on sex is it creates an actual quite visceral desperation. Like I was physically desperate. And that was enough to give me some courage. You know, there's enough to go like, this sucks so fucking much. I don't care what happens. I'll try any fucking thing. You know, like, I don't care if I crash and burn because it can't be worse than this. I can't do another four years of this. You know what I mean? It's fucking lonely. I've had enough. And so that opened me up to trying some new things. So I think that's how the kind of crisis happens when we're talking in the social sphere is that the social circle, the relationships, quite often it's like just the marriage ends in divorce or, you know, they hate their their partner, like the relationship is separated even though they're like roommates or whatever. Quite mm-hmm. often lack of sex is involved. Uh, there's not many nice guys who are also players, you know what I mean? Like, So there's this kind of moment where they go like, I don't even have anything good for all this effort. And you know what, I'll, I'll pass it over to you in a sec, but I was inspired a nutritionist friend of mine. She's, she was talking about diets and she said, if it used to work for you and you're not right now, then it never actually worked. And I was like, that's fucking brilliant. Cause if something really works, it has a sustainable ongoing success. And if that all comes crashing down and you revert back to zero or worse, then it was an illusion that it ever worked. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the thing with people pleasing is it can, you create an illusion that it works for quite some time and it comes crashing down. You're trying to like repeat what you've done before. You're like, actually, dude, you're always set up for a fall. This, you're, you're playing a system that's doomed. It cannot work. No matter how much you like amp it up, it never, it's never going to work. It just took you a while to figure that out. It's like the classic saying from Einstein that the first son of madness is repeating the same behavior and expecting a different output or something like that exactly yeah but the, the problem with uh with people pleasing is often it begins you get what looks like rewards mm. you do feel good about how it's going it seems to be working it's making life better uh and it gives you the impression it's like it's really similar to say any other drug it, it, like if you think of drinking alcohol your first two beers in you're like, I feel way more confident. This, this is good shit. 
you know, the idea that you're consuming poison that you're going to pay for heavily in the future, it just doesn't even occur to you. Even an experienced drinker isn't going, ah, I can't wait for that massive fucking hangover that takes my whole weekend, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I no, I feel really good. Shit. Yeah. I, I hate feeling drunk. I just love the hangover. <laughs> yeah, right. So people don't seem, people pleasers are very short-sighted. They look for the immediate instant gratification. They, they don't go like, this is higher purchase, man. You're going to pay interest on this motherfucker forever and you can't afford it, mm. which is, you know, the opposite of people pleasing is essentially doing what's right, but hard. So you get the reward later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think um, you can talk more about this than I can, but I think high achievers are good at getting instant wins with oh, achievement. Oh. There's the, there's the uh, Amazon. I'm just going to pause it one sec. Right. The Amazon man's gone. So as you were saying, Dan, <laughs> Well, I was thinking you can speak to it more in terms of your line of work. But what often looks like hard workers in that high achiever realm, you know, the greats, whether it be in business or entertainment or whatever, it isn't actually that hard for them. They're kind of playing to their strengths. They're doing things that come to them naturally or they pick it up quickly. Uh, They're in an area that like excelling is easy for them. Now they might grind and work really hard and get really stressed, but like another person doing the same amount of work wouldn't achieve as highly because they didn't have that natural talent. And that's what I noticed in my own career. I I kind of unconsciously would pick the path of least resistance. I'd find the thing that I'm going to do well, Mm -hmm. but there are other things that might've been more rewarding that I'd avoid because I wasn't going to do well straight out of the gate with them. You know, there's a reason I'm not a mechanic right now is because after 20 years, I'd still be an average mechanic. I was never going to excel there. And so it doesn't even occur to me to try that pathway, even if it might have been enjoyable. So I was keen to hear from you a bit about that. Like, is it true that all these CEOs and C-suite guys are working harder than everyone else and grinding more and they're struggling as much to learn as everyone else? Or are they actually picking a kind of path of least resistance? Um. I don't know about, I don't know how to answer the path of least resistance. What what I can say, I can't really even measure if they're working harder than other people because, you know, there's two ways you can say that. You might say that a CEO has a busy workload, but he has to, obviously he, but he or she has to make uh, a decision that might have consequences on the business that could mean the business goes bust. Right. Like that's a pretty damn stressful position, but then maybe a CEO's PA who is swamped with itty bitty things to do, you know, that would, how can you measure who's busier? Because actually the the calculations behind such decisions and they both probably work long hours, whatever. I just think that the key thing for me is that whether you're a CEO, whether you're a director or whether you're not, these symptoms that arise time and time again are universal. Now, how much pain somebody feels, I think is how embedded they are into how often they are a people pleaser. So I don't think you can measure the level of pain from one person to the next, or if it's because they've taken the path of least resistance, it's just where they find themselves based on how many times are they people pleased in order to get where they are, because whatever that is, that's going to cause the most pain. If you're doing it in a serial way where you're doing it every day with almost every decision, like you described at the beginning, or is this something that pops its head up once or twice a week or three times a week, whatever. So that, that to me is, is, uh, you know, that's that's how I'd measure it. I don't think you can make a direct comparison, but it, I think where the misconception is more often that people at that level don't suffer. 
people at that level don't struggle with making decisions people at that level don't struggle with what other people think of them because they've already cracked it no it's because of the strategy that's got them there and the behaviors in which they've adopted in order to be very successful is now working against them and putting them under enormous pressure but it might be maybe more exposed when at that level but that doesn't mean that it's not being exposed at with your main demographic, which is maybe somebody in the young 20s in a more social capacity, as opposed to somebody in their mid 40s. And mostly my clients are male. I do have female clients as well, but I'd say these days we're 80, 85% are male. And it's pretty much always been that way. Um, so often when I slip into heat, it's just because my brain goes into like examples of my own clients who tend to be tend to be men. But um, what is interesting are the couple of things that you were saying is um, although these people contact me because we spend eight hours a day, often more, five days a week, most weeks of the year working. So it's where it often shows up the most, in, in particularly with my clients anyway. But actually, when we get into the nitty gritty, the people pleasing behaviors aren't just in work. Like they have people pleasing traits that show up in shitloads of their world, whether it's with their friends, whether it's with their partners, whether it's in their you know, if they're married, like with the marital partners, whether with the kids, you know, I've got clients that are directors and they still struggle to say no for a night out in case of what their friends think of them. I've got one client that actually didn't like drinking alcohol at all. And he always used to say yes and go out and hate getting pissed and hate having to like just pretend to enjoy the evening. And it wasn't until he realized that he was actually people pleasing in that moment. He started just be more true to himself and if he didn't want to go out he didn't and if he wanted to go out he would but he actually stopped drinking which is what he wanted to do for a long time um and felt brilliant for it and he did take a bit of banter and a bit of pushback and a oh who do you think you are kind of thing like you know those typical comments that people start saying and doing in order to derail you from becoming a, a you know a better version of you should we say because it obviously makes them feel uncomfortable when they see somebody else doing some really confident shit um, but it's those types of things. It isn't always that, although people come to me saying, I want to be more assertive or manage upwards, actually, when I spend some good few hours with them, it starts going into the relationships, it starts going into the social lives. And actually, this stuff is universally impacting on their lives in a multitude of different areas. And actually, the, the work stuff is the easiest stuff to fix. And that's the stuff we fix most quickly. Yeah. It's when we start talking about the marriages or the, the relationship with the children or like the the situation with the local football club or whatever and actually because those things are harder to fix it once they've got those things um like sorted and more under control they find the work stuff is like this is a doddle like i've just done the easiest stuff like sorry i've just done the hardest stuff i've just you know sat down with my wife and told her how you know worried i feel about our connection moving forward and i want to have maintain our our marriage that took a lot more balls for me to do than telling my boss that I didn't want to do that spreadsheet by tomorrow. Like, so actually what happens is they, this stuff starts infiltrating into all areas of the life, but not many people realize that, you know, a lot of people make the assumption that when they roll with me, they're just going to exclusively talk about the career. And that's only sometimes half. I mean, it, it, there are some that it is just exclusively about the career, but more than often, I'd say at least 95% of the time, personal stuff starts coming up are probably the things that are really giving them proper sleepless nights over and above the boss or anything like that. Yeah, well that, that sparks off. There's an interesting dynamic. You know, we talk about spectrums and stuff. There's lots of different types of people pleasers. Mm -hmm. and they can be quite different from each other, the different types. Mm -hmm. And one one such differentiation is where does the pleasing go? And there's certain people where the further out you are in their circle, you get more pleasing. 
and actually they treat the people closest to them quite horribly. Mm. I've seen it in the extremes where like someone's an absolute tyrant at home, like mm. abusive, and yet they roll over at work and can't say no to anybody and they yep. kind of take that stress home with them. I think that's actually quite common uh, in uh, sort of high achievers in the workplace. Um, and then there's the opposite, whereas, you know, that would be my type of nice guy, which is, you know, the partner gets 90% of my energy and, you know, I might be sort of actually quite assertive or, or uh, bluff with a total stranger. Mm-hmm. Or in my case, I was actually just trying to please everyone all the time. But generally my efforts went, I was more affected emotionally the closer the person was. Mm-hmm. But it amazes me, and I've seen it so often, <clears throat> that somebody's well-loved at the workplace, they're really kind to a stranger, but the wife feels neglected, the kids barely know the dad, like that kind of thing. And when they reverse that, it's actually really healthy. When they go, you know what, I'm going to make sure that my family gets the best of my energy. It's not people-pleasing, just the best of you. And then everybody else can have whatever's left over. And that was one of the most powerful shifts I've made. And it's I've doubled down on it since having a kid. Where I've really gone like, I'll literally like somebody who's even slightly lesser out in the circle than family. You know, like if one of Lucy's friends, I won't even bother smiling. You know, I'm like, no, I got nothing left for you. I'm saving the smile for my wife. Do you know what I mean? Like in my most extreme sleep deprived times. I like don't waste a shred of energy on anyone who's not important almost. It's been a complete turnaround where there's no pleasing, no extra behavior that's done to get a good reaction whatsoever. Like I'll still interact and be respectful and get the job done sort of thing. Um, But being able to like from the little things, like I get an email from someone I don't know, I just delete it. And then I respond to my client's email with 10 minutes worth of you know, thoughtful writing, being able to like mm-hmm. change that dynamic where if I'm going to put some effort into people, make sure it's the right fucking people. Mm. Like it's got to be one of the, in fact, I know for a fact, it's one of the top five regrets of people on their deathbed, the elderly on their deathbed is they were so trying so hard to please everyone that they forgot about their family and they get to the end and their loved ones, which could include say best friends, children, partners, mothers and fathers, whatever, they get to the end, they're like, fuck, I've lost them, you know, and they're the only ones who mattered, and the ones I was pleasing, I was being fake with, so I didn't have anything there either, I actually had nothing, I'm alone, Mm. and that's one of their chief regrets, Bronnie Ware, if you look up her work, she used to work with people, she was a nurse working with people who died, and she did this huge research on it, kind of non-scientific research, but, you know, that just kept coming up, like, I should have cared about the people who mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, I should have been honest with people more. Those two go together hand in hand. And, and I should have cared more of being honest with myself and more cared more about myself as well. So things yeah. like the, the the compromises that we make on traveling the world when people have a desire. But if I do that, I'm going to have to compromise on my career. And if I do that, I'm going to lose all this reputation that I have because people think I'm the kick-ass CEO of the street. And But I'm now going to miss out on seeing the world. And they're the types of things that come up on those deathbed stories as well. Um, I think when people get to that level of pain, like you talked about it before, you, you referred to it as like going sex-free, not by choice, for four years. 
And I think at that point, people have a choice to make where they're either willing to look within and go, there's a pattern here. And it always seems to be me coming off the worst, or I can protect that part of me and be continually blaming everybody else and everything, all that, like the massive victim place where all these things are happening to me. Um, and that's in those situations, like you describe, it would be, you know, like women, they just like assholes. They just love going out with an asshole and what's wrong with these women? Can't they see what a, what a good person I am? But, the, you know, and it's, just, it kind of shows up sometimes in the same as in the workplace. Like there's no point in me applying. There's no point, you know, there's no point. There's no point. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that because they're not going to see it anyway. So that they kind of compromise on what it is that they actually want and compromise on who they could actually be because they it's too painful to look within and sometimes people need to go to a, a place of more pain to be willing to go there and sometimes people never do and they spend their entire lives in this victim place of all these things are happening to me if only they could see how cool they're being to me and actually not realizing that that's a very disempowering position and it's up to them to make the choices for themselves so and just randomly this isn't really to do with my line of work but it is connected to what you said earlier around the um like the connection side of things and lack of intimacy for four years. Women know, I, I've made a video on this and I might even send you it, it's up to you if you want to spend 30 minutes of me ranting at the camera with my whiteboard. But women very, very, um, they, they pick up on that. And it's the most, sorry, the least sexy thing that you could be if you're just a massive people pleaser. And I think I might've even mentioned to you before, but I've got on the top list, you've got all these nice qualities like attentive and kind and generous and giving and, yada yada but underneath that you've got boundaries and you've got all these other things that are connected with it and being assertive and willing to lead and willing to stick your neck out and say something a bit controversial and in actual fact a woman likes those nice quality nice guy qualities but without the other stuff it makes it a deal breaker so I'd go as far as saying the other stuff is more important because it's always the stuff that becomes the least sexy if they're missing because that's the masculine, that's the masculine energy that women are drawn to. But that doesn't mean you've got to be an asshole if you have those traits, because you can be all of those boundary-based, assertive, willing to stick your neck out, like willing to lead, and you can be kind, and you can be affectionate, and you can be attentive, and you can have both. But it's when people categorize them as it's one or the other. And if women choose the other because it's very important to them, they're deemed as like the only they are only attracted to assholes. Yeah, it's a common dilemma for my guys. You know, I think the final crisis somebody has to go through is the responsibility crisis. Essentially, this mm. is on me. And without that, there is, there's nothing you can do. It's actually one of my qualifying questions when I'm going to work with someone new. So like, whose fault is this? And if they're like mine, I'm like, okay, let's start. They're like, well, society, but I'm like, goodbye. Mm. Like, I can't help you yet. I need someone who goes like, at the very least, they blame themselves. We can start with that. We'll move it into responsibility from there. But, you know, uh, most of my work is about healthy masculinity. It's mm -hmm. what is the thing that's neither nice nor the jerk? What's the third thing? It's not even in the middle because it's not on that spectrum. It's what do those qualities look like when they're with integrity? You know, there is some truth to the old cliche that women like a bad boy, but it's actually the qualities that guys dis displaying that's attractive you know he'll speak his mind he'll stand mm -hmm. up for what he believes in he'll do a little bit of risk-taking and courageous and exciting behavior now a total prick can do all of that which is kind of you know i feel 
bad form and like they're kind of hooked in through the attraction they can't control into a guy who's actually coming from a really unhealthy place. But yeah, somebody who's really giving and generous is attractive. Somebody who's like so kind, it's charismatic, is attractive. But if it's a game, the person, this is the thing I think nice girls don't suffer in dating in terms of uh, missing out as much as nice guys do. Nice girls have a different suffering, which is attracting kind of users and abusers, but they attract plenty of them, you know, and they've still got lots of options <laughs> if that's a win. Um, I think the re reason why, yeah, why nice guys tend to miss out in love uh, is because women are so intuitive. They know when there's something wrong with the intention, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so you can like, you can take a guy's genuinely, genuinely confident and a nice guy and they do the exact same behavior, mm -hmm. almost mirror image. The girl still be able to nine times out of 10, tell you this guy's more attractive. Yep. She might not even be able to tell you why she just knows. Whereas guys are less intuitive in such a way, you know, uh, we're talking in generalities here, but I don't think I'm going to be proven wrong anytime soon. Mm. But I this is, it, yeah. Sorry, sorry, I thought you finished. Sorry, sorry, Dan. Well, this is, it just goes beyond sex. Attractiveness, if we think of it as a general term of wanting somebody in your life, of valuing them, of mm. preferring them over somebody else or being alone. Uh, people pleasing kills that in all areas, not just romance. You know, when the boss, like, I remember a boss giving me a very critical piece of feedback that I didn't quite understand at the time. Um, I wanted to be in this uh, prison release team, which is the high-risk sexy stuff as a probation officer. It's working with the real bad boys, you know. And I was in the supervision team, which is like drink drivers and people who shouted at their wives so much that the neighbors called. It was nothing, you know. And I came up to him, and he was the big bad dude at the workplace. I was like, how do I get into your team? And I can't remember exactly what he said, but the gist was like, you're too nice. Come back when you got some balls kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He could see it. He didn't want me in his team because he needed somebody who can, he needed masculinity in this team, whether it's a guy or a girl. He needs somebody who can stand up to a fucking murderer and say, shut up, don't talk to me like that. Right? Like, and he knew I couldn't. He just, he could smell it on me. Right? I'm working with mostly drug addicts. I didn't need to be masculine. I needed to be feminine with them. You know, they needed, they shouldn't even be in the system. That's another topic. I'm working with guys who are bad now, you know, we used to talk about criminals difference between mad and bad. There's the two types of criminals and to work with bad, you've got to be tough. You got to have some fucking balls or strong ovaries, whatever the equivalent is for women. Like actually the team was mostly women. I'm not surprised, but you know, we, we couldn't just go in there and be a pushover. He could smell it on me. And I had many other instances in my life, non-romantic where the people pleasing was actually a deal breaker. The few people who weren't tricked by my act, and there was only a few, but they were perceptive, confident people. Mm. One guy at school, just one in a school of 1,500 who clearly didn't like me. And as time has gone on, I've seen like that was the only real confident guy in our school. Like the only guy who wasn't a teenager or full of insecurity. He was, he was like the man, but really. Mm -hmm. And he could just, he knew something was wrong with me. And he, did, he wasn't mean to me or anything. It's just avoidance. Like if I'm in the same room with him, he always seemed to be 10 meters away, no matter where I stood, you know, mm -hmm. he was just put off by me. So yeah, I think it's, it's ultimately very unattractive and you will pay for it 
because you're only going to attract very insecure, naive people. And that's mm-hmm. a fucking nightmare, whether it's the workplace or your bedroom. Uh, and you're going to put off confident people who are looking for other confident people, which means yeah. you miss out on so much. And that that particular thing about being too nice in your promotion isn't uh, an unfamiliar thing that I hear in my typical clients as well. I've, I've had a lot of people enroll to me saying, I'm about to go for promotion. I've got all the skills, get on well with everybody. Boss loves me, but they think I'm too nice and I've no idea what they mean. And immediately my brain goes, okay, I can work with this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's it's very it's one of the qualities that is massively needed in leadership. A lot of people think to be a good leader, you've just got to be liked by everybody. Well, you're not going to like you're not going to be liked by everybody when you're making decisions that affect different categories of people in different ways. And some people aren't going to be as well off from that decision. Not that mean financially necessarily, it's just their circumstances might not be as preferable compared to somebody else's. Or maybe a project gets cancelled or maybe you need to slash a part of a project or change a deadline or something along the lines that somebody's going to lose out because of it. And if I think I read a phrase once who said, if you want to become a lead, if you want to be liked by everybody, don't become a leader, become a popcorn seller or something mm-hmm. like that, where everybody likes you. And it's one of the things that is a critical for being a good leader. And the, the analogy I often give people and uh, you and I have touched on this in the past generally as well, is that if you think about the most inspiring leader you've ever thought of in your life, whether it's somebody famous or somebody you've worked with or whatever, people often go, yeah, but I need to learn my job more. I need to go to, I need to learn my, my, my industry. I need to understand this more. Thinking that's going to make the difference of making, being a good leader. I said, if you look at the most inspiring leader you've ever had, it isn't because they've got a plethora of um, like industry knowledge. It's because they're integral. It's because they're brave. It's because you trust what they say and you, you know that they mean what they say. It's because there's no eggshelly environment around them because you, they're safe, because you know that they're going to be predictable in what they say. It's because you trust them to stick their neck out and speak the truth, whether it's in, in defense of themselves or in defense for you. And they'll say the right thing because it's the right thing to say. That's why you admire these people. And, and they'll go, oh my God, yeah, that is it. And they get so latched into performance and delivery and deadlines and I should get promotion because, you know, my, my work is great, but actually leadership skills are very, very different to just being very good at your job. And that's when it starts hitting home that actually when, when um, they're focused on, I've just got to get on with everybody. How many times have they not been assertive? How many times have they had to have a really bloody uncomfortable conversation with somebody that actually in the longer term will benefit them, but they've been avoiding it because they're scared of upsetting them or they're scared of the uncomfortable environment between them. How many times have they, taken on a piece of work from their boss and worked all night, you know, and told everybody about it the next day, they're passing a message to their team that this is the way you have to behave in order to get through in life. So that style of behavior is cascading down and you've now got a burnt out team. Actually, what they need to see is inspiration to say, no, we're already maxed out, dude. Like I can't take on anything more. We're going to have to find an alternative way to do it. Or I don't know, or we don't do it, whatever. But it's those types of behaviors that make the difference between a leader or not. But not all of them, but a few of them actually said I've been rejected based on I've been too nice. So that that phrase, people get so confused by it. But this, everything you've just said and everything I've just said is exactly what that means. Basically, I'm too nice. It's it's like it's it's not assertive enough. Yeah, well, I think yeah, that's that's just universal. It's the workplace, it's home life, it's family. The same mm. rules apply. It's kind of human nature rules there that being too nice is off-putting 
and creates a defensiveness in people. There's something wrong with this guy. You know, mm. even the thing is, even a people pleaser knows that when another people pleaser is people pleasing them. You know, when someone's like being too helpful to a people pleaser, they know something's wrong with the person. They know it more than anybody. They're like, I, I know why I'd be doing this. This is some bullshit, mm-hmm. right? And they don't realize, hey, I'm actually repulsed by this behavior. Why don't I click? And this was a huge like kick in the nuts for me that made me feel like I'd wasted most of my life. Was I'm like, hey, I already know this behavior sucks because I know it when other people do it. I don't find them more attractive when they do it. I don't want to be around them when they do it. Like mm-hmm. some stuff, like I like being around a funny person, for example. But I way prefer being around a person who's fucking like one of the things that I was always kind of clued me up as to who I really want to be is, you know, people I'd admire. And that's a kind of key thing I do with my clients. If you want to find out what your core values are, start with who do you admire and try to figure out why you admire them. What is it internally about them that you're looking up to? Because that's who you're not being and want to be. Well, there's a I, I throughout my life I've always liked being around uh, very confrontational people, as long as it's not with me, as long as I'm the friend. Like, you know, I had one friend in high school, he's, he was in a fight every week. He would go to parties and just punch some random dude in the head and it would just be carnage. This guy was just, he was like, uh, I don't know, the, he, he like attracted trouble. He was just getting arrested all the time. I just loved it. I, I love the thrill of like writing, like never being in trouble myself, but being right next to him when he got in trouble. Or like when I got older, I liked the guy who was always causing shit in the workplace or the person who's real argumentative. I had a lot of friends like that. Something I found attractive about it. And it was because it was everything I wasn't and desperately wished. You know, I, I used to just with longing go, fuck, I wish I could say something like that. Man, he said it right to his face. How the fuck do you do that? You know, I used to have those moments. Uh, and, and I didn't realize I was getting feedback like I'm attracted to that. Everything I've been told tells me that's bad behavior. Why do I like it then? Is is what I've been told, you know, we're all told, you know, be nice, don't say anything if you haven't got anything nice to say. You know, that's what people pleasers are raised with. And yet we're often attracted to the opposite. We like a bit of friction as long as it's not us. We love to watch something, you know, awkward and confrontational like The Office as long as we don't work there. And we've got this attraction for it. And... You know, I. you talk about that happening in the workplace, person not getting the promotion. I mean, the same thing happens in marriages, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, my sex life has died. I'm like, okay, so where's the sexual tension? Where's the tension? And you'll find there is none. I, I eliminate it all. I make sure it doesn't happen. There's no arguments in my house. But when they do happen, they're like massive explosions of all the pent-up rage, which isn't mm-hmm. the same as like a healthy tense conflict i was like what do you think your partner wants you think they want a bland flat line of emotion you think that's life you don't think they want a range well how are you supposed to have highs if you don't have lows how, how are you supposed to have soft if you don't have hard you're supposed to have calm if you don't have chaotic like don't you understand this package comes at a price you have to have the whole range and it's amazing like when I first started experimenting with it in relationships, romantic relationships and friendships to some extent, I was like, what happens when I piss them off? As long as it's done with integrity, I'm like, you know what? They're not going to like this opinion, but fuck it. Here it comes. Or I'm going to tell them off for that behavior. And how often 
that would be followed by immediate boost of sex life. And it just, it took me a while to click. I'm like, is it actually not bad that we argue? Is it actually okay? Well, is it okay that we disagree? I, I would say it's slightly, I think we're saying the same thing, but I'm going to add on like slightly different way of seeing it. Because I, I think some people, I, I've said similar things to people and they've they've taken it as start an argument or go and be a bit of a jerk or, you know, piss off your wife so you can do makeup sex. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when, well, I think what you're saying too, if I, if I understood correctly, when you're willing to be real to yourself and express what you really want, express what's most unhelpful to you, express what your preferences are, whatever, that inevitably will come with the caveat of disagreements. It's inevitable because yeah. otherwise you're basically saying every single person on this planet I spend time with are going to see the world in exactly the same way as me on every single topic that we talk about. And that is a complete impossibility. So it doesn't mean it necessarily has to come with an argument. It might escalate into that from time to time. As long as you're integra integrally communicating, you can always diffuse that. But why it often, I would imagine, end in something with more intimacy is because in that moment, you're demonstrating strength. You're demonstrating bravery. You're demonstrating that you're independent. You're demonstrating a masculine energy. And that passive stuff is the opposite of that. And that's why it's not attractive. And I've, I've never been personally one for like makeup sex or anything like that. But if I'm with a guy that is absolutely sure about his thoughts, even if I disagree with him, I'm so much more attracted to him than I am the guy that says yes to me on everything. Because that's I'd go as far as saying it's so repelling these days for me that I could possibly even vomit like it is that bad for me. Whereas somebody that it doesn't mean that they're a jerk about it. And it doesn't mean if they say it in a cruel way that I'm going to accept it. But it, it does mean that underneath that, if they said it in a kind way, but I see a completely opposite end of the spectrum of beliefs, it's actually really attractive. So I'm like, well, you're not going to buckle. You show me that you're strong. You show me that you've got your own mind. You show me that you've got your intelligence. You show me you've got your own bravery. Show me that you're not going to just say how high if I say jump. And that's what's attractive about it. Absolutely. I think that's the correct way to interpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying manufacture a false disagreement. Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is prioritize honesty over harmony mm -hmm. right and it's not like seeking disharmony because that's a form of falsity itself you know there's a type of people pleaser a rare niche that i call contrarian which is they deliberately disagree to get attention mm. and so they actually appear quite confrontational and they have a lot of conflict in their life but they actually like that they like being the bad guy so it's actually a kind of inverse form of people pleasing it's people displeasing, but it comes from the exact same place. It's just it's just a strategy. For... I'm not going to say the name, but I think you and I know somebody that you, we've spoken about. We absolutely exactly do, that. and we both know who we're talking about. <laughs> yes, and um, it's fucking annoying. <laughs> yeah, but it, and it's also it. just it's just so transparent. You can say yeah. two opposite things, and they'll disagree with both. Like, yeah. you know, they can be easily tested, but um, and that's not going to go anywhere. But it's the integrity. That's what I try and get across to guys. Integrity is yeah. attractive. And that goes far beyond the bedroom. It, you know, there was a breakthrough in my career where I stopped trying to please people and started to do the job right by my standards. And I was like, fuck this, trying to be like... Uh, now, the irony was when I started doing that, which included pissing off a lot of my peers, they gave me the name Golden Boy, which mm -hmm. wasn't a compliment. 
And so I was kind of there, not all of them, but there was a group of my peers who would certainly gossip about me when having a smoke break or something. I got glimpses of information about this and I was kind of reviled for being this high performer, but I wasn't high performer to please anymore. Now I was high performer because I had integrity. I'm coming into the workplace like, I'm going to fucking crush this job because it's an important job to do. And I was getting in trouble upstairs as well because I was breaking the rules because I was doing what was right rather than what followed the rules and so on. So I was kind of like on an island here, like, fuck, does anyone even like me? Who gives a shit? I'm just going to do my job. But there were a few others who, like me, behaved with integrity and we, we didn't form a clique or anything, but there was mutual respect there. Long story short, I've told this story before. I accidentally got sent an email uh, because my name was on a meeting minutes. But it was a way, way high up meeting. I shouldn't have seen this fucking agenda. Uh, but the secretary just thought, you know, it's his name. He must have been there. Uh, and I quickly get an email from my manager like, fuck, don't read that. You're not supposed to get it. So I'm like, I'm definitely reading this. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, so I read through and there was a bit where they were talking about this really sticky, difficult potential media outrage kind of issue that needed to be dealt with a very difficult offender very high profile very famous in new zealand uh serial killer and you know he was about to come out and they're just like what the fuck are we going to do because no matter what we do media is going to crucify us and they just put we'll put our secret weapon dan on the case i was like that's how they view me and what i realized is like my integrity had done the work for me i was not trying to get this kind of validation i wasn't trying to be seen like that i was actually multiple times i did things where i'm like they've got to fire me now like it just had to be done i don't care what i didn't realize is way above my station i'm being watched and they're like who's someone we can rely on to have integrity mm. and they're waiting for like the moment where they've got to play that card you know where they need someone who will take the hits from the media and won't bend and who will deal with someone who's a big deal but won't fucking be blown away by it and so on and i was like fuck that's the best thing i could have done for my career but you wouldn't have known it if you asked the people i was like noticing i wasn't getting immediate instant gratification but my career until i left to start my own business skyrocketed after i changed this behavior i was always the youngest whenever i got promoted i was the youngest to ever be this thing and then the next thing and my just my scope got bigger and bigger I'd show up to like job interviews, my tattoos showing, no tie or anything. They're just like, oh my God, you're hired because I'd done all the work. Like I didn't have to people please in the interview. I just, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a good example for that, blah, blah, blah. I'd still get the job because my reputation was not manufactured. It wasn't something I tried to maintain. It was just the long-term work of integrity where eventually all the lies get settled. All the gossip gets crushed. Because you're so consistent that you never slip. You know, you see the, the cancel culture thing happening these days. And it's often this kind of like this glaring uh, thing. And, and one or two things happens. Either the person sort of acts out of character and gets crushed. Because like this, you know, you get the Kevin Spacey type. No, he seemed like such a nice guy. So no, he's a fucking predator. Right? You get this out of character thing. Or, and this is the one that breaks my heart, is somebody's actually in character, but then they apologize for it. So they're just like, they're instead of saying, yeah, I talk like that. They're like, oh, I shouldn't have tweeted that thing 10 years ago. And then, of course, because they say sorry and they're ashamed of it, they get crushed. And I always think, like, if you just stay strong, you can't get crushed. Look at Dave Chappelle. 
The guy should have been cancelled 400 times by now. He doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't shift. He's always Dave Chappelle. Whether you're talking to him at a bar, whether he's doing a stadium, whether he's an interview on the news, he never is inconsistent. And that's why he can say anything and never get cancelled. And that's why he always, every time he does something controversial, he just gets even bigger. You know, there's a there's a pattern playing out there. And I'm seeing the opposite, uh, you know, in our, our field, actually. Sort of in our field, you get the self-development guru types, the real, like, cheesy marketing. Look, i got six Porsches, and I just hustled and grind, so, you know, you just follow me. Yeah. And uh, a lot of them are actually falling apart now. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they've still got money in the bank, but that approach has started falling apart now. You know, the uh, it was started sort of by Tony Robbins, though I think it was him being a bit more genuine than the others. But you got the Ty Lopez and all these other guys, Grant Cardone, they came through and they had this real sort of high-pressure bullshit guru-like tactic that they were playing. But it doesn't have longevity. It's lasted about four or five years, give them ten at the most. And now nobody believes a fucking word they say, and they know that the Porsches and the ad were just rented, and it's all kind of fallen down for them. They're struggling now. Um, and and whereas you got someone like, I know someone I follow like Sadhguru, uh, there's a few other people who have been doing the same thing consistently, highs and lows, rain and su- sunshine sort of thing. And they never die because you can't take down a person with integrity, right? Um, and that was the kind of deal that I took on faith when I decided to quit the people pleasing is like, I'm going to trust what I'm seeing and just go the honest route. Like, even though that's going to create a lot more waves in the short term, I'm going to trust that that's actually how you create smooth sailing in the long term. And so far, That's exactly how it's played out for me. Like, I don't have, like, no conflict in my life. I've I've learned to accept there's a certain degree of it. But it's it's just so rare for me now because, like, who's going to argue with me now? I'm so sure of myself in a way. Um, And I'm surrounded by people who are right for me and so on. And when I have disagreements, they're fun and playful and usually helpful and I've like paved the way, and I, but I had a very rocky start. And I think this is what a lot of people pleasers struggle with that you and I work with is, I call it the phase one, the transition phase, which is when you switch to being honest, yeah, it's going to get rough. Mm. Like you, you've got a whole life built on dishonesty. It is not going to respond well to a shift. The people yeah. around you are not going to necessarily like the new you, or should I say the real you. And you're going to lose a lot. Some of you will need to change careers or change uh, where you work. Some of you are going to get divorced from your partner and lose your best friend or so-called best friend. And some of you may never speak to your family again. Like there's some rough shit that happens when you switch to honesty. Mm -hmm. If you get through that valley, on the other side, you're so solid that you never have to worry about that happening again. Mm -hmm. It won't be allowed to build up like that again. You'll never have to undo that damage. Yes. And what's more, the concept of behaving like that again is more painful than the pain that comes with losing things by being honest. That was my experience. So even though on my own journey, and we're all on a journey, like we're not 
I don't think I'm the finished article and I don't think you're, you're trying to say that either. No. But on that journey, I've definitely gone through bumps. I've, I've lost friends. I've had shaming comments from people. I've had arguments. You know, I've had to, I've changed my career. I've done things differently. I've butted heads to people. Like it comes with the caveat of you're going to trigger other people because they start seeing a side to you that probably they want themselves. And it, it rocks their, like it exposes their insecurity when you start being a, a better, stronger, you know, version of yourself. Um, but when, once you get to that stage, the moment it's like, this is the norm now. And I feel so much better, feel so much more healed almost on the inside. And it's, it's so liberating to live in this way. The thought of going back to that shrinking violet to be the person that says yes when they want to say no, to be the person that agrees with something that they don't want to agree to, the person that laughs at a joke that isn't bloody funny just to fit in is so repelling and unbearable that the, it, it's almost like a seesaw. And as you go in this journey, once it's weighted down to the new one, there's no going back. You can't go back to that, that version of who you used to be because the pain is too great to actually experience that despite the fact that you probably have lost a couple of things on that journey. Absolutely. Like it sits with me so hard now when I slip that that's actually my biggest problem in life is a relapse, like worrying about it happening. And then if it does happen, I'm so like distraught that I'll destroy everything to undo it, you know? And whereas before I was exactly the opposite. Like if I accidentally did not please someone, if someone didn't like me, I'd lie awake for two weeks trying to figure out how to change their mind. Now, you know, I mean, someone could like me just for the wrong reasons. Like if I sign up a client and I know that I was kind of using a bit of sales tactics on them or something, and I'll, I'll just lie awake at night, like I need to fucking end this with this. Like, this is wrong. This is fucked. And I just can't, I can't live with it. I can't even accept their money. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. it's like that. It's one of the hardest things is the transition is because once you open the door to how dishonest you are, you can't shut the door and lie to yourself anymore. And people who stop during the transition are in hell. It's better to be a people pleaser. If you're a people pleaser, knowing that you're people pleasing, it's all full of shit, but you still won't like work on it. I mean, there's no greater sort of torment just to watch yourself living without integrity, just watch yourself being a fake person and it doesn't even work very well. I mean, what a horrible life. That's why you've got to push through to the other side once you've had your awakening is like go all the way have full faith because you can't stop in the middle. You have to keep going. It's like swimming from one island to another. You, you can't just stop Shed, and drown. Shedding like, water, yeah. I can swim. Like, yeah, it. I have to emphasize, like, the things you're worried about happening, yes, some of them are going to happen. And even on occasion, it's worse than you imagined. Most of the time, it's way, way less. Like most of the time, someone loses a friend, they're like, actually, I'm fucking relieved to get rid of that idiot. Um, they don't realize that they, they were scared of nothing at all. But sometimes it is, you know, I remember the first time someone said that they were like disappointed in me. I was like hurt for like three days from that. Like that was my fucking Achilles heel. That very word disappointed. I was like, oh my God, I've disappointed someone. It hasn't happened since I was a kid, you know? Mm. Um, and I was just like, fuck, I just have to sit with this pain. I just have to let them be disappointed. I have to realize like their expectations are not my problem. Mm-hmm. that I've behaved as good as I can possibly behave. I actually always am behaving to the best of my ability. Everyone is. And if that's not good enough for them, that's actually their inability to perceive reality. But Jesus Christ, my chest hurts, you know, and I just had to let my chest hurt and let them be mad at me until they got over it on their own and resist the urge 
to go and change their mind about that, to try and either convince them they were wrong or convince them like through making up for my baby. I just had to be like, nah, I'm the bad guy here. That's it. That's, that's how this case ends. It doesn't yeah, end with me true. being the good guy again. And, but the freedom, like you say, it's just what we're really talking about underneath all of this is freedom. People pleasing is a fucking prison. It yeah. sucks. Mm-hmm. And everybody who's doing it knows it. If they just stop for a second, just fucking second for once, stop filling their mind with busyness and drugs and Netflix and just go, how do I feel about my life? It all hits you. Like, this is shit. This is it forever. Fuck this. This is horrible. It's mm-hmm. like acting and you don't even enjoy the part. And you don't even win an Oscar or nothing. It's just shit, you know? And and you don't get any choices. And you're just constantly having to keep things in all the time. It's and exhausting. Just, oh, it's so exhausting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sleep deprived now, but I'm not exhausted in that way anymore. You know, that way where I just had a million secrets and I had to keep profiles and everyone in my head and constantly, like, avert crisis and anticipate and prevent confrontation and try to, like... It's like spinning plates and every time I saw them try and get their approval of me up again and keep it spinning and fucking Christ, how I ever did anything is beyond me. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you know, just to walk into a party and go, ah, whatever these people think of me is fine. Let's just let, it, they can figure it out for themselves. So I don't have to do anything. I can just sit on the couch the whole night. Well, that's fine. I don't have to put mm. any effort. It's quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm going to write, as you're talking, I'm writing things down. So I want to come back to them. Because like another thing as well that I think when it comes to people pleasing is uh, well you know this is a lack of assertiveness which is pretty much the the be all and end all of what got me into coaching in the first instance to be coached obviously I've since become a coach since then but that lack of assertiveness because the fear of what somebody might think of you or the damage that it might cause to the relationship or all these other stories all these other stories in your head around. I might not get the promotion or I might just be seen as weak or I might be seen as incompetent and all whatever the story is like telling you, like the fear-based story, basically. Um, but a lot of people still misunderstand honesty. And although I help people, and obviously you do too, with being more honest and being more assertive, telling somebody that they're a jackass to me isn't being honest. Right. So often people think they're being honest and actually they're just going massively into a place of judgment. That's probably going to trigger somebody else from not a place of integrity and what they're communicating isn't a place of integrity. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time with is people go, yeah, oh, I said that. I said that to them, blah, blah, blah. And they haven't. They've said it in an indirect, sarcastic way. They've said it in a passive way. They've said it in a, a hinty way. They've said it in a, in a way that isn't actually clear about what they're actually saying. Um, or they've just waited until that pressure has built up so much that they do it in an aggressive way. So they're, they're quite, you know, not just confrontational, but quite mean about it as well. So I think people often, like one of the biggest things as well as people pleasing is this, the ability to what speaking honestly actually is. And I got a lot of this from you in our training was actually honesty is a reflection of what's going on inside you and then making that correlate with what you're saying and doing on the outside. But if you're just going, yeah, but you don't know because you're a dickhead, that isn't actually being honest. That's just being aggressive and judgmental and you're not going to get the results in which you want. So understanding A, to be more honest, but what honesty actually looks like and not slipping into a place of judgment thinking that's going to be more honest. And therefore what tends to happen is that if people don't understand, I think that's what the point I'm trying to make. 
people don't understand what honesty really looks like. They seem to think, or they, they might misunderstand what we're saying and go into a room of a social environment and go, well, I'm not going to care what they think of me, but I'm just going to be honest. And they walk in and go, I don't like your shirt or you look like a prick wearing those shoes or you need to lose some weight. And obviously I'm being pretty extreme here, but people think that's being honest. It's not. And that's going to cause more damage them actually not well it's probably going to cause as much damage as not saying anything if you want to be honest understand that honesty is actually a reflection of what's going on inside of you not what your judgment is of somebody else that this is something that's happening inside of me right now because that's where the as long as you're projecting onto somebody else you're avoiding what's actually really happening inside of you it's almost become like a cover or like a defense mechanism to to look within because you're just on the attack and the projection of somebody else what are your thoughts on that uh, that's a really important distinction. I, I, you know, I boil it down in my book, The Naked Truth, that dishonesty is ultimately sharing your inner experience. Mm-hmm. And a simple way to put it is you should be talking about yourself. That's honesty. I mean, there's times where you talk about other things, but in talking about being what I call powerfully honest, you should only be talking about yourself. I feel, I think, I believe, I perceive this to be, you know, the narrative in my head says... And it's actually a very vulnerable thing. You know, a lot of people think they're being honest when they're being a dick. Like I say mm-hmm. to someone like, oh, you're an asshole. And they think that's being honest. I'm like, dude, you didn't share a thing about yourself when you said that. You're yeah. not taking any risks at all. Yeah. You're just throwing an insult at someone. How about saying I'm upset? See how that feels. Mm. That feels way more vulnerable. Like yep. I'm sensitive. I can't handle your behavior. That's honesty. You're actually saying the same thing. Mm. When someone says you're a dick, that's what they really mean is I'm so upset by your behavior that I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a truthful thing to say. Yep. You know, I disagree. I dislike this. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want you in my life anymore. You know, these are powerfully honest things to say. You don't need to say a thing about the other person. You're just talking about yourself. Mm. But this is the kind of honesty people are terrified of doing. And this is the honesty that would be is the game changer and was a massive game changer for me. So you, you see it on social media all the time when like I'll give you an example that comes to mind. There's a lady that I follow on um, on one of the, the platforms that I, I utilize. And she is in like she works in legal stuff. So she's a lawyer and she's covered in tattoos, like all her hands, all her arms, whatever. And it's only sleeves, whatever. But she often takes pictures wearing sleeveless tops and whatever like if that's what she wants that's what she wants but then people will comment on this saying you don't look professional this is the this won't work in your industry you'll never get a client just being honest that's not freaking honest that's judgmental because her business is bloody booming and good on her as well what that person is really saying is i don't believe in my opinion that you look professional i wouldn't hire you as my lawyer and I don't know if this will impact on your business or not, but they say it with this factual certainty that that's being honest. But when somebody projects it as this is fact, like you don't look professional, that's not honest. So the honest thing is, I don't think you look professional. And as a result, I wouldn't hire you. But if that was the case, nobody would hire her and her business would be flawed. But she's she's got like now 15 staff and she's absolutely killing it. And it's because she's so authentic and so real about who she is. And she obviously knows her shit when it comes to her industry. She hasn't got an issue finding clients. If anything, her tattoos attract a bit more attention to help her bring in a few more clients, if anything, but she's shameless about it. But it's those comments that bug me when people so strongly 
misunderstand what honesty is and when people project their judgment in this place of this is factually correct and it's a big thing from when people move from being more open and people find it easy when they understand this to move away from being so locked about I can't be um I can't say what I want to say I can't express myself I'm scared I'm going to offend people I'm scared of what people are going to think of me but actually when they get a way to deliver it actually becomes a little easier for them to stop people pleasing because they can say something in a way that isn't attacking the other person and it and not only that they've just got this release of what's actually going on inside of them because it's actually much much more honest but without that knowledge it becomes like so much harder to be honest which therefore becomes more of a lock for people pleasers and it's also the reason in my experience that not necessarily people I work with this form but people that have gone from being a people pleaser listened to a show like this and gone oh I just now need to be honest walked into a room of people and being honest being hit hard with loads of rejection which fundamentally is one of their biggest fears anyway and then said oh this stuff doesn't work well firstly the fact that you say does it work would suggest that you had the wrong motivation because it was to actually manipulate rather than doing it for the right reasons and secondly your approach was shit so no wonder it's going to feel awkward and then it kind of it just gets more entangled and this is why having a coach I believe helps streamline that of what is actually honest what isn't honest what's people pleasing what isn't what's your motivation to be this person when you say it doesn't work your motivation was obviously to get a particular reaction so you were still people pleasing in that process when you were doing it and that lack of awareness keeps people locked repeating these behaviors 100 percent. you know one of the biggest lies people pleasers tell themselves is i'm an honest person mm. and now you're you're like really not you're like really, really far away from that. <laughs> and you, you, you're going to be blown away when you see it. You're going to think. I nearly spat my water there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a memory uh, come back to me just last month. You know, there's there's moments in a people pleaser's life where they do experience true honesty, true connection. And there's often kind of like moments they can't think of how it happened. They can't repeat it. They don't even try. They don't dare. Uh, usually moments supported by alcohol and drugs they have these moments where the shit got real for a little bit usually in a positive way and i had such a memory where uh i was at a kind of festival doesn't matter but i went to a tent with a girl that i'd known for a long time and i did find her attractive and everything but i don't know i think i was on ecstasy and we just talked and we talked so long that the sun came up and people were getting their breakfast ready and shit and we just had to like stop we would just stop. We, we would have talked until we died of starvation if somebody hadn't intervened. <laughs> Can't remember a word of what we spoke about other than the tone of just complete transparency. It was one of the only times, maybe, in my entire life I'd been totally real with someone without even a hint of manipulation, and it was reciprocated. We could, You know when you just know someone's being real with you? There's just, mm. you don't need to prove it. You just know for certain there's kind of key markers where you'd be like, they'd never say that if they were trying to like impress me or something. And we're just probably, as far as I remember, we're just mostly talking about our insecurities and our fears and kind of not in a therapy way, but in like, uh, like a connecting way, like, God, it's hard to be a human, isn't it? Like, Jesus, you too. Fuck. I do that too. It's mental. Why do we do this stuff? You know, it was that kind of conversation and we just got so excited about it. Just like, oh, I get to finally admit to this. And I'll try admitting to that. And them mm. too. And the nice, like the, the, one of the least lonely experiences of my life, you know, especially at that time, that was one of the only times I really like, I just didn't want it to end. 
I was, I was more interested in converse, you know, she was like the hottest girl I know. And I was like, I don't want to have sex. I want to talk. Like I, I've never talked like this before in my life. I've never felt so free, you know, and it was definitely drug assisted, but all drugs do is just, you know, reduce inhibitions. That was in me. It was really me. It's just me without fear for once, you know? Mm. Um, and that kind of honesty is what we're talking about. And the people who say they're honest have very few and far between memories of that actually happening of when they mm -hmm. open everything up. Like I talk about like, when's the last time you opened up your forehead and let someone see how your mind actually works, where you being inside your head is the same as what's coming out of your mouth. When's the last time you did that? Mm. And the answer, if they're being finally honest is fucking never. Right, not even with my wife, or only with my best friend, but nobody else, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sometimes people have a marker like there's one person they are actually honest with. Yeah. Best friend, uh, a brother, maybe uh, their partner. Sometimes with people pleasers, their partner's like the one like safe space for them. I'm like, well, if you're not talking like that with everybody, then no, you're not an honest person. And it's actually a great. I, I prefer actually when somebody has a reference point like that. So mm -hmm. I'm like, when you tell me your office at the workplace, you know, you're honest at the workplace. Are you saying you talk at the workplace the same as you talk to your partner? No, like, fuck no. I'm like, well, then you're not honest in the workplace. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying the topics will be the same, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. like, when your partner does something that annoys you, you say, oh, that's annoying. But when your boss does something that annoys you, you just like sit there fuming. It's different. Mm -hmm. That's called dishonesty and so on. And yeah, like you said, like, I mean, the internet comment section is just a place to go and want to kill yourself. You know, it's just that it makes you lose faith in humanity. But you're actually seeing a pretty accurate representation of people who, you know, through the safety of on the internet, they can be more confrontational than they usually are. And they think they're being honest. I'm like, dude, you haven't shared a thing about yourself. So what's the honesty? What do you mean by honesty if you nothing about you is revealed other than that you're a bit judgmental right now? But like you said, you know, the person who says, you know, your tattoos will crush your business or whatever. What they're really saying is, I've been emotionally affected by seeing a picture of you in tattoos. And I'm so uneasy about it that I'm going to try and change you. <laughs> like you never see a comment that says that, right? But that's what they're saying. Or I'm going to try and shame you because yeah. of my discomfort. Because my own shame is too, in too uncomfortable to handle. So if I project my shame onto you and blame you for my feelings... You're the one that ends up being shamed. Yeah. If enough people validated me by liking this, then I can convince myself for a short period of time that I'm the one in the right. Don't you wish people commented like that? But they don't, you know? But the thing is you can translate it as that, and you can yeah. see that's a contrarian type of people-pleasing. I'm going to be the bad guy to get attention and validation and hide the fact that I actually am the bad guy inside. Mm. Um, and I'm going to make it look like, you know, all the people – who do anything critical on the internet, basically. I was actually thinking about this the other day, like people who are critics as a job. And, you know, I don't mean to rag on people personally here, but I'm like, the best thing you could think of for doing a job is like doing detached judgments of other people. But even criticism, it can be different to like, the food was terrible versus right. I prefer things that are cooked this way. Yeah. Those are two completely different statements. You know, one yeah. is honest and the other is judgmental. Yeah. Um, but 
See, people pleasers have a false dichotomy. They think the only opposite to being nice is being a jerk. Yes. So they think being honest means being an asshole. It's like, no, you're still on the wrong spectrum altogether. Yeah. All of those people are sick. You need to get off that spectrum. Well, I think also to add on to that, that's been many of their experiences because often people pleasers will suppress, suppress, suppress with the inability, not inability, because everybody's got the ability, but without the knowledge of how to express it when they really needed to, basically with that pressure cooker building, building, building. And by the time they release it, it's come from a place of heightened emotion because that straw that broke the camel's back is actually nothing to do with it's a disproportional reaction to the one thing that was the trigger there's all this like catalog of events that they haven't expressed themselves previously and then in their own personal experiences when they have expressed themselves it is aggressive so they're like well if that's what it means to be assertive I don't want to be that person so I'm just going to stay this suppressed person but then they can't stop it it's too emotional and over time whether that's a week a month six months a year whatever at some point that is going to come out and then they carry that shame around it. And it's that inability at the time or lack of knowledge of knowing how to say, this is bugging me, but I want to say something now before it builds up. Because if this happens on repeat, I'm going to get really pissed off about it. But rather than speaking like that, they wait until it's happened 10 times and they're like, rah! And they're like, oh shit, is that what I've got to be to be assertive? And it's not, that's not assertive. That's a very unhelpful form of aggression. That's definitely, there's a very big difference. And so few people understand that. Assertiveness doesn't even have to involve conflict. Almost always people make the association, for me to be assertive, I have to be in conflict. Or when I say I help people becoming more assertive, they think, oh, you help people do conflict management. It includes conflict management. But if you're assertive, it doesn't even get to bloody conflict unless you're dealing with a genuine bell end, and that's a different topic. But if you're genuinely assertive on a much more regular level, in an integral way, it rarely reaches conflict. And that is the massive misconception that so many people don't understand. You're saying it all. That's the truth. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that people think holding it in is a good idea. If you're to talk mm-hmm. about someone else doing it, they're going to go, oh, that's a terrible idea. But as soon as it comes to themselves, they kind of disassociate. They think, oh, it's not worth the conflict, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, they're trapped in a loop because they think being honest is this horrible thing that you do to people. You know, being assertive could be defined as strongly expressing your preference. There's nothing unhealthy about that there. It doesn't even have to be strongly, does it? Just Probably expressing your preference. Expressing it, at least strong enough that, it, you know, you don't allow yourself to be bowled over. You know, like if the waiter comes over to your table and says, how's your food and your chicken was raw? You say, I'm really sorry, but my chicken was raw. Can I have another one, please? That can be done so assertively but so kindly but this you know british way oh mustn't cause a scene like that's Mm. still assertive it doesn't have to be strongly it doesn't have to be aggressively it's just saying what you bloody want that's it that's still being assertive well actually maybe that's one way we can kind of wrap it i know we'll keep talking for hours if we don't (laughs) but and i'll ask for your opinion on your chief tactic but for me if i was going to give one piece of practical advice that is the most effective is to honestly express your preference at all times there's people pleasing and being a jerk does not do that Mm -hmm. so being jerks they'll try to dominate and so on and so forth yeah but they won't actually be honest about the vulnerable you know intimate weak parts of themselves the insecurities and so on and nice guy might be 
uh, honest about all that stuff if it's the kind of thing that will get approval and compassion and sympathy um, but they're not going to be honest about what they don't like very much they're not going to be mm. honest about preferring a different option to what's popular and so on but if you not only is expressing your preferences assertiveness and it takes you out of that spectrum you don't have to like you say you're quite right you don't have to do it strongly you don't have to beat people up with it you can simply say in a meeting i disagree but i'll go with the group if i have to mm -hmm. right it's just making sure that whatever you felt about it gets heard gets said even if it doesn't get heard and is accurate it is honest the long-term effect of doing this isn't just about other people you'll find out who the fuck you are People pleasers lose themselves. They spent so long trying to fit in or, or fit a, you know, a reputation that was built without them, or whatever, that they don't even know who they are. Uh, Jim Carrey went through a big revelation around this a few years ago. He's like, "What is Jim Carrey? I don't even know anymore." And he sort of started over again. But when you start saying like, "I have to say what I want," you have to think about what you want. Mm. You have to ignore the autopilot agreeable thing. Go, what do I actually want right now? And you might surprise yourself sometimes. You know, I surprised myself both ways, like going, fuck, I don't want to go to that movie, actually. <laughs> or more, actually, for me, it was like, I don't want to go to nightclubs ever again. So, mm. wow, I've always known that, actually. Why did I keep going? And there's other times where I'd be like, fuck it, yeah, I'll go to Australia for a weekend. What the fuck, why not? I don't care if it's a hassle. And there's been times where I've been surprised by, like, what I actually want. It's what got me into dancing, this approach. Some girl asked me, like, you want to try the salsa class? And I was like, fuck, I actually do. Just don't tell anyone. Christ. You know? And I was like, shit, I think I actually like dancing. I've, I've always known that. I just didn't know that I knew that. And so on. So that's my number one tip. If you want to break out of this, it's as small as just expressing your preferences as often and honestly as possible. And, and that's, you can focus on just that and see massive gains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think for my one tip would be, um, first of all, taking away, I mean, again, this, it would take a bit of work to understand exactly what honesty truly looks like. We've touched on it, but there's, there's more depth there than what we've actually gone into. But whenever you feel the resistance to say something because it's based on what other people might think or what other people might say or how other people might react is probably the most important thing for you to be saying. So there's expressing your preference. I, I agree with you. If you get in a pattern of expressing your preferences, it can come as small as I'd prefer to have water as opposed to lemonade or something that really doesn't make any difference. I prefer jelly beans over Jaffa cakes, whatever. But the times that you can pretty much get the measurement, if this is something that's going to be damaging for you, is the times when you get that resistance to say it, because there's a message there that that is the key indicator for me that if I don't say something, I'm going to, this is going to contribute to something not good, whether that's a buildup of something later, whether that's me feeling frustrated later in the evening, whether this is a pop experience later in three months time, because it's going to keep happening. And that is the main thing to look out for the resistance at the times when your body is saying, I want to be speaking more honestly now. And you've convinced yourself probably through a story of a fear-based story or a total bullshit story in your head of not to say it. And they're the key indicators of light that we I would suggest to pay more attention to because for me, they're the more damaging moments than, than anything. Yeah, I think we're kind of saying the same thing. I mean, you could almost combine the two. Like if you keep expressing your preferences, it's only a matter of time before you hit the point where you're scared to do so. And that's mm. when you really got to do it. Like mm. that's when it has to happen the most.
And yeah. again, it doesn't have to be you're a dick. It's just preferences. I'd rather you didn't do that. Yes. I don't like the plan for this team or whatever. Um, and if you just like, you just become this almost like religious fanatic about expressing those things. Like you mm -hmm. say, you're looking like it's amazing the breakthrough you can have if you just do it just once at the time you'd never do it. Mm -hmm. Break that. Do it once for once, you know. Disagree with the boss for once. Tell your partner that you didn't enjoy the cooking for once. You know, just get it out once and just see, like, but can I actually handle what happens next? Because they're so scared that they can't. They're, they're so catastrophic in their head. I'm going to lose my job. My partner will divorce me. Nobody will ever like me. They go to such extreme places. I used to imagine being homeless whenever I was in trouble at work, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm really homeless. Like, that's the next step. Like there's no other steps in between. Like I might not, <laughs> yeah. like I'll never work exactly. again. I can't yeah. live with my parents, nothing. Like <laughs> it's yeah. so ridiculous. But that was it. I was catastrophizing all the time. Such like huge panics I'd have. But I, yeah, I just remember the first few times it got confrontational. I'd just say, oh, look, I'd rather you guys didn't do this or, you know, I don't agree. Or, you know, I remember I'm not going to drink anymore. That was a huge one actually. Mm -hmm. And I like, you know, that's a good example. I, I went through rolling fucking resistance with that. Like, I tell people, they all laugh at me. Then I go to the party, they try to force me to drink. I have to say no again. They get drunker and they start giving me shit and saying, you think you're better than us? And, you know, all that starts happening. But what happened was I got through all of it. Mm. Yeah, it was messy and uncomfortable. And I actually found out I don't like some people after that, which wasn't a bad revelation, but certainly wasn't pleasurable. But afterwards, I'm like, I'm still here. I'm still standing. What was I scared of again, exactly? What did I think I was going to end up being after this? And, and I think, sorry to cut you off, but I think of a really good point on what you're saying is the measurement of success. I'm always buying on about measurements of success being the fact that you did it, not yep. the measurement on how other people reacted. Because I've also heard that one say, well, I did say it and I did come from a place in me and they turned around and told me that I was too sensitive or they, they told me that I'm overreacting or they told me that I just need to pipe down and not say anything again in meetings or whatever and actually that if their measurement is how if other people react you're still in the people pleasing mindset you're still in the mindset of I'm trying to do the right thing but it, my measurement of success is on how you react so now you're back in control again actually the measurement of success is I've just done something that I've never freaking done before in my life and that is going to help me and that is basically a, a unconscious message to myself I'm worth it I'm worth fighting for I'm worth expressing myself for not I'm not worth it because somebody else told me I'm not worth it so that's connected to what you're saying but it just for me it's like how you then measure it if you do take the lunge and actually you know do it exactly I guess the measurement is you prioritize your integrity over approval from others mm -hmm. if you did that that's a win it doesn't matter actually how they respond um you know I'll finish with a story that like broke my heart with a client I was working with many years ago. Uh, he was, you know, really struggled with standing up for himself. And we had this kind of big ticket item we were building up towards, which was he was going to stand up to, I think it was his business partner or his boss. I can't remember. And say something he didn't like that he's been holding on to for fucking years. Right. And so we're building up to this slow little confrontations along the way, climbing the ladder. And we got to, him, he finally did it. And of course it was nowhere near as bad as he thought it was going to be. The guy's like, yeah, no, nah, fair enough. I'm glad you said something. Let's change it. It was a great response, actually. <laughs> but he came back next week and he was morose. I was like, dude, what? you should be on a high. What the fuck? Like, you won. You finally did it. 
He's like, yeah, but I was so anxious. I was like, mm. what, what, what? I was genuinely like, and? He's like, no, that's that's the whole story. He was disappointed. He felt, felt like it was a loss because he didn't feel good doing it. Yeah, I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, dude, that's that's not a loss. In fact, if you felt good doing it, it's not a win. <laughs> like, yeah. You only know you made progress if it was horrible. You know what I mean? Like, of course. Like, do you really think discomfort means you lost? The fuck? You didn't even lose the result. You won the result. You did what you had actually set out to do, which is the point. Three months, three years, you've been trying to find the courage to do this, and you finally do it, and you think being anxious is a failure? Fuck, I still get anxious when I confront people. Yeah. That's how I know it's a, that's how I know like I'm at the edge, like I'm actually being better than usual. If I'm feeling yeah. comfortable, I'm just in the zone. Like I've already done this before. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. So that's a huge thing. Like being a people pleaser is all about being familiar and comfortable, especially familiar. And they've got to understand like you are going to have conversations that make you feel yuck inside and you're actually doing it right. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have people be upset with you for a sustained period of time. Sometimes it never ends. And you actually did the right thing. And that's the new world that you're living in now, which is like there's a full range of emotions now. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and it's hard. Like I'm, I'm half psychopathic as well as being a people pleaser. And like when I first started having emotional experiences, it wiped me out. You know? Like I'd have a disagreement with someone. They're like, you know, I never want to talk to you again or something. And I just had all this guilt and shame and fucking anxiety about the thing beforehand. And then like – a kind of like withdrawal exhaustion thing afterwards. I just be like, Jesus Christ, how do people live like this? You know, it's like a marathon. Um, but it was just a training I had to get through and I can handle emotions much better now, but I had to open the range up and it mm-hmm. was terrifying. And I thought I was doing it wrong until I realized like, how can me being true to myself be wrong? Like I, I don't have any secrets anymore. I'm surrounded by people who love me for what I am rather than what I pretend to be. I'm doing a job that suits what I believe in, like, where's the loss here? And not only that, your new friends are more solid than the old friends anyway. Awesome. One thing I've noticed since I've been more open and honest is that anybody I've met in that period of time, and this continues to be the case as well, even now, that actually there are 10 times better caliber than the friends I was talking about with 20 years ago that I was constantly like frustrated with. So I don't have the frustration even on the basic level now because I'm now attracting people into my life that are much more on the same kind of operate like the way that they operate the way that they communicate the way that they think about the world is so much more in alignment with who I am now versus the people that I used to connect with when I was the old version of me so although I lost friends in the journey I've gained new ones that are much more solid apart from with the exception of my best mate who I don't think that's ever I think it's unshakable but that he's he's an exception but everybody else they've come and gone and come and gone some have been on the fence some have got a bit close with one solid but the new people, absolutely belting friends. I absolutely love it. So I'm generally just way happier as a person than trying to be somebody that I wasn't when, like, years ago, whatever. Absolutely. And, look, I have to go soon, but one of the things I always keep in mind is I think the ultimate tragic lesson uh, is Robin Williams. You know, he committed suicide, I think, last year. or might have been the year before. I've lost track of the time. Jesus, way before then, Dan. Was it? Yeah, well, I had a kid. About five years ago. <laughs> I'm like Down syndrome about time dilation now. I've got no sense of anything. But he, uh, yeah, so he committed suicide. And 
Talk about a guy who ticks all the boxes for pleasing people, right? He was one of the most pleasant people who have ever existed in recorded history. He was so well-loved, super popular without controversy, right? Uh, comedian, both stand-up and an actor. Uh, he played some of the most loved roles of all time, you know, the genie from Aladdin, you know what I mean? Like, not everyone found him funny, but everyone thought he was a good dude. You know, he used to go and dress up and go to sick kids' hospitals and make them all feel better. And, you know, everybody's, everybody's famous has got a story about how Robin Williams just made their day or their week just randomly for no reason and so on. This guy, he kills himself with a belt, of all things. For me, that detail is important. It's just such a rugged, like, homely way to kill yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like, in the end, even the way he went out was, was, was like normal you know and the th the thing that stands out to me i'm like he did people pleasing better than anyone and couldn't like it's rare to kill yourself at that age most most suicides for men happen uh early 20s or midlife crisis in the early 40s and then it really dies down those stats die down significantly after that most guys get through that like oh fuck it i'll see it out to the end kind of thing or they do the like subtle suicide with alcohol Mm -hmm. um but so for a guy to kill himself at that stage like he still after all those years couldn't find a formula that was enough to get him through to the end you know he was still that tragically depressed and miserable that is the big red flag that's how bad people pleasing is in fact the better you are at it the more it ends up hurting you mm -hmm. you know and I think he was a genuinely good guy underneath it all. That's the, one of the great tragedies with people pleasing. At least half of them are quite genuinely decent people tainted by their need for approval. You know, everything he did was unsatisfying because there was never enough approval for him. I'm guessing at this point, but he couldn't even appreciate the amount of love that he got because of that taint, that, that toxic little bit of motivation he had to like be pleased, you know, to be loved. Uh, who knows? I bet, you know, his comedy probably would have been darker and even funnier if he'd just not given a fuck what people thought of him, you know? Who knows? He would have got more satisfaction and been more real in his career if he hadn't had that little toxic drip of, I need people to love me. Um, and the reason I use him as an example is because, like, if he wasn't happy, what chance do you have? You know, he ticks 10 out of 10 in all the categories of pleasing people. He killed himself with a belt. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. If it was going to work for anyone, it would be him, right? Yeah, sure. Look at Will Smith's life just disintegrating now because he finally had a nice guy puke at the Oscars and slept Chris Rock. Like, mm, I don't believe that was, I'm sorry, but I think that was staged. But just well, Whatever it was, it didn't do him any favors, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, good luck fucking getting a decent role after this. And I, I actually personally believe because, like, Will Smith is is me, just he did it better. Like, I read his book, I'm like, haha, that's fucking me. I know exactly what's going on. Even the bits he isn't sure of, even how he brags in the book, I'm like, you're still doing it, motherfucker. Like, you're still me, you know? Um, the outrage that he feels, like... He is statistically the most successful actor of all time. Still not happy. Still doesn't have a healthy relationship. Right? 
you could say his career is doing exceptionally well, but if he doesn't enjoy it, then what the fuck's the point? Don't they both sleep with other people? They have an open relationship, don't they? Oh, they went through a phase. It's not quite like that, but who knows what you read. But read his, his book's really interesting, like, because uh, it's also written by Mark Manson, who's very aware of people-pleasing and stuff, so you see like a lot Mark. of Manson's <laughs> influence and how things are uh, portrayed in the book. He kind of, he must have done a lot of calling out shit when Will was bragging and stuff, but the point being is, like, it doesn't work. If it worked, these guys would be super happy and healthy, and you'd never hear any controversies from them, and they'd be mm-hmm. crushing it. You know who you don't hear controversies about? Fucking Keanu Reeves. You know? Mm. Like, that dude, like, he, he, he'll make a crap movie just because it's fun. He'll give half his money to the people who work there but not tell anybody. Mm-hmm. The guy lives in a flat. He takes the subway. Like, the guy's not trying to be cool. Maybe he was once, but he's not anymore. He's not people-pleasing. He, like... He'll make a movie just for his fans, knowing that the movie's going to bomb. Like, that's not people-pleasing. That's generosity, right? He's doing it differently. He's not going to get crushed by his fame and his success because he doesn't give two shits about it. He just gives a shit about doing what he loves and being around people he likes, and it's just so clear, and that's why there's always so many good news stories coming out about the guy. His integrity has lasted the distance, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. I love Keanu. He's good Yeah. Guy. How can you not, though? And that's the thing. He's not actually people-pleasing. Yeah. You love him anyway, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, look, we've got to wrap this up. Um, but uh, I, I, could, I could go on forever. <laughs> I, think, I love that you and I have differing perspectives on, like, where the people who come to us, where they, why they come. You know, you've got the high-powered career-type people, and I've got the lost and struggling and love-type people with crossovers. Um but we see people pleasing like the pattern, the results, it, it plays out just in different contexts, but it's playing out the same. It has the same mm. tragic story to it. Yeah. It does, yeah. And I, I like you, I could I could literally talk about this all day. Like I could just go on and on and on about it because there's so many examples I could give, additions, nuances, like differences between one type of people pleasing to another, examples in ex relationships where just, you know, one quick like 30 second example is a guy that was seeing good few months ago got set up through a mutual friends waiting for this amazing person to emerge from whatever never really ever felt it but I'm going to give it time keep being told is incredible the deal breaker for me was when he said um if I get angry you'll never know and I was like no I want to know I want to know if you're angry because no but there's no point you know if I was angry I would never be, I, w- I would deal with it but you'd never know and I was like trust me I'd fucking know and secondly, that is the biggest put off ever. And at that moment, I knew that it was just, it, it was over. No matter what happened after then, it was going to be over. Yeah. So um, that comment alone, just people don't realize how damaging it is, when, you, especially when you're dealing with somebody that is trained <laughs> in people pleasing. That's the worst thing you could say to me. <laughs> so, um, but even if I wasn't trained in that or whatever, other people would pick up on that type of comment. It's repelling. It's absolutely repelling. So you know, people just keep falling into their own traps, making things worse for themselves and not realizing they're constantly shooting themselves in the foot and spotting it, doing something about it, hiring someone like you, hiring someone like me, whatever, or watching a podcast like this of like two hours, whatever it takes, but doing something, don't just m- like mill around and play the victim because nothing ever changes. And like you said, it doesn't work. It will never work. Fact prove us wrong we'll, we'll take you on any day to try and prove us wrong that people pleasing actually works fucking hey yeah i'm yet to see evidence i'm waiting yeah 
Exactly. Yeah, the guy you just described, the poor guy thought he was bragging. Jeez. Oh, God, is that the worst thing you could have said? But anyway, Dan, let's wrap this up. So yep. how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out in any way? Oh, just email me, dan at brojo.org. That's how I do everything now, personal. Cool. Um, that's the best way to do that, yep. Awesome. And for myself, it's my website, www.angiemcquillan.com or my email, which is info at Nice and straightforward. So, Dan, as always, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure. We always have the problem that we talk too long, so I have to chop it up a little bit to get it into my editing tool. <laughs> but, um, cool. It was great to see you again, and thanks very much for your time. You too. I'll catch you later. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.